RTE Podcasts present the RTE Players Complete Production of Ulysses by James Joyce, recorded in 1982. Episode 12, Cyclops, 5 p.m., 16th of June 1904, Barney Kiernan's Pub, Little Britain Street. I was just passing the time of day with old Troy of the DMP at the corner of Arbor Hill there, and be damned, but a bloody sweep came along, and he near drove his gear into my eye. I turned around to let him have the weight of my tongue, when who should I see dodging along Stony Batter only Joe Hines? Hello, Joe, says I, how are you blowing? Did you see that bloody chimney sweep near shove my eye out with his brush? Such luck, says Joe. Who's the old bollocks you were talking to? Old Troy, says I, was in the force. I'm on two minds not to give that fellow in charge for obstructing the thoroughfare with his brooms and ladders. What are you doing round those parts? says Joe. Devil a much, says I. There's a bloody big foxy thief beyond by the garrison church at the corner of the chicken lane. Old Troy was just giving me a wrinkle about him. Lifted any god's quantity of tea and sugar to pay three bob a week. Said he had a farm in the county down off a hoppermate home by the name of Moses Herzog over there near Hatesbury Street. Circumcised? Says Joe. Aye, says I, a bit off that top. An old plumber named Garrity. I'm hanging on to his taw now for the past fortnight and I can't get a penny out of him. That delay you're on now, says Joe. Aye, says I. How are the mighty fallen? Collector of bad and doubtful debts. But that's the most notorious bloody robber you'd meet in a day's walk. And the face on him, all pockmarks, would hold a shower of rain. Tell him, says he, I dare him, says he, and I double dare him to send you round here again, or if he does, says he, I'll have him summoned up before the court, so will I, for trading without a licence. And he, after stuffing himself till his fit had burst, Jesus, I had to laugh at the little Jewy getting his shirt out. He drink me my teas, he eat me my sugars, because he no pay me my monies. For non-perishable goods bought of Moses Herzog of 13 St. Kevin's Parade, Wood Keyward Merchant, hereinafter called the Vendor, and sold and delivered to Michael E. Geraghty, Esquire of 29 Arbor Hill in the city of Dublin, Aaron Keyward Gentleman, hereinafter called the Purchaser. Be dedicated to five pounds avoir du pois of first choice tea at three shillings per pound avoir du pois, and three stone avoir du pois of sugar crushed crystal at three pence per pound avoir du pois, the said purchaser debtor to the said vendor of one pound five shillings and six pence sterling for value received, which amount shall be paid by said purchaser to said vendor in weekly installments every seven calendar days of three shillings and no pence sterling. And the said non-perishable goods shall not be pawned or pledged or sold or otherwise alienated by the said purchaser, but shall be and remain and be held to be the sole and exclusive property of the said vendor to be disposed of at his good will and pleasure until the said amount shall have been duly paid by the said purchaser to the said vendor in the manner herein set forth as this day hereby agreed between the said vendor, his heirs, successors, trustees and assigns of the one part and the said purchaser, his heirs, successors, trustees and assigns of the other part. Are you a strict T.T.? says Joe. 
Not taking anything between drinks, says I. What about paying our respects to our friend, says Joe. Who, says I? Sure he's in John of God's off his head, poor man. Drinking his own stuff, says Joe. Aye, says I. Whiskey and water on the brain. Come around to Barney Cannon, says Joe. I want to see the citizen. Barney Mavurnin's be it, says I. Anything strange or wonderful, Joe? Not a word, says Joe. I was up at that meeting in the city arms. What was that, Joe, says I. Cattle traders, says Joe. About the foot and milk disease. I want to give the citizen a hard word about it. So we went around by the linen hall barracks and the back of the courthouse, talking of one thing or another. Decent fellow, Joe, when he has it. But you like that, he never has it. Jesus, I couldn't get over that bloody foxy Garrity, that daylight robber, for trading without a license, says he. In Inish Foil the Fair there lies a land, the land of holy Mikan. There rises a watchtower beheld of men afar. There sleep the mighty dead as in life they slept, warriors and princes of high renown. A pleasant land it is, in sooth of murmuring waters, fishful streams where sport the gunnard, the place, the roach, the halibut, the jibbed haddock, the grills, the dab, the brill, the flounder, the mixed coarse fish generally, and other denizens of the aqueous kingdom too numerous to be enumerated. In the mild breezes of the west and of the east, the lofty trees wave in different directions their first-class foliage, the wafty sycamore, the Lebanonian cedar, the exalted plane tree, the eugenic eucalyptus, and other ornaments of the arboreal world with which that region is thoroughly well supplied. Lovely maidens sit in close proximity to the roots of the lovely trees, singing the most lovely songs while they play with all kinds of lovely objects, as, for example, golden ingots, silvery fishes, Crans of herrings, draughts of eels, codlings, creels of fingerlings, purple sea gems, and playful insects. And heroes voyage from afar to woo them, from Eblana to Sleeve Margi, the peerless princes of unfettered Munster and of Connacht the Just, and of smooth, sleek Linster, and of Crochen's land, and of Armagh the Splendid, and of the noble district of Boyle, Princes, the sons of kings. And there rises a shining palace, whose crystal glittering roof is seen by mariners who traverse the extensive sea in barks built expressly for that purpose. And thither come all herds and fatlings and first fruits of that land, for O'Connell Fitzsimon takes toll of them, a chieftain descended from chieftains. Thither the extremely large wains bring foison of the fields, flaskets of cauliflowers, floats of spinach, pineapple chunks, rangoon beans, strikes of tomatoes, drums of figs, drills of swedes, spherical potatoes and tallies of iridescent kale, york and savoy, and trays of onions, pearls of the earth, and punnets of mushrooms and custard marrows and fat vetches and beer and rape, and red, green, yellow, brown, russet, sweet, big, bitter, ripe, pomelated apples, and chips of strawberries, and sieves of gooseberries, pulpy and pelurious, and strawberries fit for princes, 
and raspberries from their canes. I dare him, says he, and I double dare him. Come out here, Geraghty, you notorious bloody Hillandale robber. And by that way when the herds innumerable of bellwethers and flushed ewes, and shearling rams and lambs and stubble geese, and medium steers and roaring mares and polled calves and long wools and store sheep and cuffs prime springers and culls and sow pigs and bacon hogs and the various different varieties of highly distinguished swine and angus heifers and polly bullocks of immaculate pedigree together with prime premiated milch cows and beeves and there is ever heard a trampling, cackling, roaring, lowing, bleating, bellowing, rumbling, grunting, champing, chewing of sheep and pigs and heavy-hooved kine from pasture-lands of Lusk and Rush and Carrick mines and from the streamy vales of Thomond, from McGillicuddy's reeks, the inaccessible and lordly Shannon, the unfathomable, and from the gentle declivities of the place of the race of Keir, their udders distended with superabundance of milk, and butts of butter and rennets of cheese, and farmers' firkins and targets of lamb and crannocks of corn and oblong eggs in great hundreds various in size, the agate with the dun. So we turned into Barney Kiernan's, and there, sure enough, was the citizen up in the corner having a great confab with himself and that bloody mangy mongrel Gary Owen and he waiting for what the sky would drop in the way of drink. There he is, says I, in his glory hole with his crew-skeen lawn and his load of papers working for the cause. The bloody mongrel let a grouse out of him would give you the creeps. Be a corporal work of mercy if someone would take the life of that bloody dog. I'm told for the fact he ate a good part of the breeches off a constabulary man in Santry that came round one time with a blue paper about a licence. Stand and deliver, says he. That's all right, citizen, says Joe. Friends here. Pass, friends, says he. Then he rubs his hand in his eye and says he. What's your opinion of the times? Doing the rapparee and Rory of the Hill. But big up, Joe was equal to the occasion. I think the markets are on a rise, says he, sliding his hand down his fork. So big up, the citizen claps his paw on his knee, and he says, Foreign wars is the cause of it. And says Joe, sticking his thumb in his pocket, It's the Russians wish to tyrannise. I give over your bloody cotton, Joe, says I. I would thirst on you, I wouldn't sell for half a crown. Give it a name, citizen, says Joe. Wine of the country, says he. What's yours? Says Joe. Ditto Macanaspe, says I. Three points, Terry. Says Joe. And how's the old heart, citizen? Says he. Never better, Akara. Says he. What, Gary? Are we going to win, eh? And with that, he took the bloody old trouser by the scruff of the neck, and by Jesus, he near throttled him. The figure seated on a large boulder at the foot of a round tower was that of a broad-shouldered, deep-chested, strong-limbed, frank-eyed, red-haired, freely-freckled, shaggy-bearded, wide-mouthed, large-nosed, long-headed, deep-voiced, bare-kneed, brawny-handed, hairy-legged, ruddy-faced, sinewy-armed hero. From shoulder to shoulder he measured several L's, and his rock-like, mountainous knees were covered, as was likewise the rest of his body, wherever visible, with a strong growth of tawny, prickly hair in hue and toughness similar to the mountain gorse, Ulex Europius. 
The wide-winged nostrils, from which bristles of the same tawny hue projected, were of such capaciousness that within their cavernous obscurity the field lark might easily have lodged her nest. The eyes, in which a tear and a smile strove ever for the mastery, were of the dimensions of a good-sized cauliflower. A powerful current of warm breath issued at regular intervals from the profound cavity of his mouth, while in rhythmic resonance the loud, strong, hail reverberations of his formidable heart thundered rumblingly, causing the ground, the summit of the lofty tower, and the still loftier walls of the cave to vibrate and tremble. He wore a long, unsleeved garment of recently flayed oxhide reaching to the knees in a loose kilt, and this was bound about his middle by a girdle of plaited straw and rushes. Beneath this he wore trues of deerskin roughly stitched with gut. His nether extremities were encased in high balbrigan buskins dyed in lichen purple, the feet being shod with brogues of salted cowhide, laced with the windpipe of the same beast. From his girdle hung a row of sea-stones, which dangled at every movement of his portentous frame, and on these were graven with rude yet striking art the tribal images of many Irish heroes and heroines of antiquity. Cúchulainn, Con of Hundred Battles, Niall of Nine Hostages, Brian of Kinkora, the Ardry Malachy, Art McMurrah, Shane O'Neill, Father John Murphy, Owen Rowe, Patrick Sarsfield, Red Hugh O'Donnell, Red Jim McDermott, Sogart Owen O'Growney, Michael Dwyer, Francie Higgins, Henry Joy McCracken, Goliath, Horace Wheatley, Thomas Conniff, Peg Woffington, the village blacksmith, Captain Moonlight, Captain Boycott, Dante Alighieri, Christopher Columbus, St. Fursa, St. Brendan, Marshal McMahon, Charlemagne, Theobald Wolf Tone, the mother of the Maccabees, the last of the Mohicans, the Rose of Castile, the man for Galway, the man that broke the bank at Monte Carlo, the man in the gap, the woman who didn't, Benjamin Franklin, Napoleon Bonaparte, John L. Sullivan, Cleopatra, Savournine Delish, Julius Caesar, Paracelsus, Sir Thomas Lipton, William Tell, Michelangelo, Hayes, Mohammed, the Bride of Lammermoor, Peter the Hermit, Peter the Packer, Dark Rosaline, Patrick W. Shakespeare, Brian Confucius, Myrta Gutenberg, Patricio Velasquez, Captain Nemo, Tristan and Isolde, the First Prince of Wales, Thomas Cook and Son, the Bold Soldier Boy, Aaron Apogue, Dick Turpin, Ludwig Beethoven, the Colleen Bourne, Waddler Healy, Angus the Caldee, Dolly Mount, Sidney Parade, Ben Hoth, Valentine Greatrakes, Adam and Eve, Arthur Wellesley, Boss Croker, Herodotus, Jack the Giant Killer, Gautama Buddha, Lady Godiva, the Lily of Killarney, Balor of the Evil Eye, the Queen of Sheba, Aki Nagel, Joe Nagel, Alessandro Volta, Jeremiah O'Donovan Russell, Don Philip O'Sullivan Bear. A couched spear of accumulated granite rested by him, while at his feet reposed a savage animal of the canine tribe, whose stertorous gasps announced that he was sunk in uneasy slumber, a supposition confirmed by hoarse growls and spasmodic movements which his master repressed from time to time by tranquilising blows of a mighty cudgel rudely fashioned out of paleolithic stone. So anyhow, Teddy brought the three points Joe was standing and begot the sight nearly left my eyes when I saw him land out a quid. Oh, as true as I'm telling you. A good-looking sovereign. And there's more where that came from, says he. Were you robbing the pure box, Joe, says I. Sweat of my brow, says Joe. Twas the prudent member gave me the wheeze. I saw him before he met you, says I, sloping around by Pill Lane and Greek Street with his Zoe counting up all the goods of the fish. Who comes through Micken's land, bedight in sable armour? O Bloom, the son of Rory, it is he. 
impervious to fear as Rory's son, he of the prudent soul. For the old woman of Princess Street, says the citizen, the subsidised organ, the pledge-bound party on the floor of the house. And look at this blasted rag, says he. Look at this, says he. The Irish Independent, if you please, founded by Parnell to be the working man's friend. Listen to the births and deaths in the Irish All for Ireland Independent, and I'll thank you. And the marriages. And he starts reading them out. Gordon, Barnfield Crescent, Exeter. Red Main of Ifley, St. Anne's on Sea, the wife of William T. Redmain of a son. How's that, eh? Wright and Flint, Vincent and Gillette to Rother Marion, daughter of Rosa and the late George Alfred Gillette, 179 Clapham Road, Stockwell. Playwood and Ridsdale at St. Jude's, Kensington, by the very reverend Dr. Forrest, Dean of Worcester. Eh? <laughs> Deaths. Bristow at Whitehall Lane, London. Carr, Stoke Newington, of gastritis and heart disease. Cockburn at the Moat House, Chipstow. I know that fellow, says Joe, from better experience. Cockburn. Dimsey, wife of David Dimsey, late of the Admiralty. Miller, Tottenham, aged 85. Welsh, June the 12th, at 35 Canning Street, Liverpool, Isabella Helen. How's that for the national press, eh, my brown son? How's that for Martin Murphy, the Bantry jobber? Ah, well, says Joe, handing round the bills. Thanks be to God they had the start of us. Drink that, citizen. I will, says he. Honourable person. Health, Joe, says I, and all down the farm. Ah, oh, don't be talking. I was blue mouldy for the want of that point. Clear to God I could hear it hit the pit in my stomach with a click. And lo, as they quaffed their cup of joy... A godlike messenger came swiftly in, radiant as the eye of heaven, a comely youth. And behind him there passed an elder of noble gait and countenance, bearing the sacred scrolls of law, and with him his lady wife, a dame of peerless lineage, fairest of her race. Little Alf Bergen popped in round the door, and hid behind Barney's snug, squeezed up with the laughing. And who was sitting up there in the corner that I hadn't seen, snoring drunk, blind to the world, only Bob Dorn? I didn't know what was up, and Alf kept making signs out of the door. And begob, what was it only that bloody old pantaloon Dennis Breen in his bath slippers, with two bloody big books tucked under his oxter, and the wife hot foot after him, unfortunate wretched woman trotting like a poodle. I thought Alf would split. Look at him, says he. Breen, he's traipsing all round Dublin with a postcard someone sent him with UP up on it to take a lie. <laughs> and he doubled up. Take a what, says I? Libel action, says he. For £10,000. Oh, hell, says I. The bloody mongrel began to growl that had put the fear of God in you, seeing something was up. But the citizen gave him a kick in the ribs. Peer the host, says he. Who? Says Joe. Breed. Says Alf. He was in John Henry Menton's, and then he went round to Collis and Ward's, and then Tom Rochford met him and sent him round to the sub-sheriffs for a lark. Oh, God, I've a pain laughing. You pee up. 
The Longfellow gave him an eye as good as a process. And now the bloody old lunatic has gone round to Green Street to look for a G-man. When is Long John going to hang that fella in Mount Joy? Says Joe. Bacon! Says Bob Dorden, waking up. Is that Alf Bacon? Yes! Says Alf. Hanging? Wait till I show you. Here, Terry, give us a pony. That bloody old fool, £10,000. You should have seen Long John's eye. You pee. <laughs> and he started laughing. Who are you laughing at? Says Bob Jordan. Is that Bacon? Hurry up, Terry boy! Says Alf. Terence O'Ryan heard him and straightway brought him a crystal cup full of the foaming ebon ale, which the noble twin brothers, Bung Ivy and Bung Ardalon, brew ever in their divine ale vats, cunning as the sons of deathless Leda. For they garner the succulent berries of the hop, and mass and sift and bruise and brew them, and they mix therewith sour juices, and bring the must to the sacred fire, and cease not night or day from their toil, those cunning brothers, lords of the vat. Then did you, chivalrous Terence, hand forth as to the manner born that nectarous beverage, and you offered the crystal cup to him that thirsted, the soul of chivalry, in beauty akin to the immortals. But he, the young chief of the Obergans, could ill brook to be outdone in generous deeds, but gave therefore with gracious gesture a testoon of costliest bronze. Thereon, embossed in excellent smithwork, was seen the image of a queen of regal port, scion of the House of Brunswick, Victoria her name, her most excellent majesty by grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and of the British dominions beyond the sea, queen, defender of the faith, empress of India, even she who bore rule, a victress over many peoples, the well-beloved, for they knew and loved her from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, the pale, the dark, the ruddy, and the Ethiop. What's that bloody Freemason doing? Says the citizen. Prowling up and down outside. What's that? Says Joe. Here you are. Says Alf, chucking out the rhino. Talking about hanging. I'll show you something you never saw. Hangman's letters. Look at here. So he took a bundle of wisps of letters and envelopes out of his pocket. Are you cotton? Says I. Honest, Injun. Says Alf. Read them. So Joe took up the letters. Who are you laughing at? Says Bob Jordan. So I saw there was going to be a bit of a dust. Bob's a queer chap when the porter's up in him, so says I, just to make talk. How's Willie Murray those times, Alf? I don't know, says Alf. I saw him just now on Cable Street with Paddy Dignam, only I was running after that. You what? says Joe, throwing down the letters. With who? With Dignam, says Alf. Is it Paddy? says Joe. Yes, says Alf. Why? Don't you know he's dead? says Joe. Paddy Dignam dead? says Alf. Aye, says Joe. Sure, I'm after seeing him not five minutes ago, says Alf. As plain as a pikestaff. Who's dead, says Bob Jordan. You saw his ghost then, says Joe. Got between us and harm. What, says Alf. Good Christ, only five. What? And Willie Murray with them. The two of them there near what do you call him's. What? Dignam dead. What about Dignam, says Bob Jordan. Who's talking about dead, says Alf. He is no more dead than you are. Maybe so, says Joe. They took the liberty of burying him this morning anyhow. Paddy, says Alf. Aye, says Joe. He paid the debt of nature, God be merciful to him. Good Christ, says Alf. Begob, he was what you might call flabbergasted. In the darkness, spirit hands were felt to flutter, and when prayer by tantras had been directed to the proper quarter, 
a faint but increasing luminosity of ruby light became gradually visible, the apparition of the etheric double being particularly lifelike owing to the discharge of jivic rays from the crown of the head and face. Communication was effected through the pituitary body and also by means of the orange, fiery and scarlet rays emanating from the sacral region and solar plexus. Questioned by his earth name as to his whereabouts in the heaven world, he stated that he was now on the path of Preleia, or return, but was still submitted to trial at the hands of certain bloodthirsty entities on the lower astral levels. In reply to a question as to his first sensations in the great divide beyond, he stated that previously he had seen as in a glass darkly, but that those who had passed over had summit possibilities of atmic development opened up to them. Interrogated as to whether life there resembled our experience in the flesh, he stated that he had heard from more favoured beings, now in the spirit, that their abodes were equipped with every modern home comfort, such as telephena, elevator, hosecolda, water closet, and that the highest adepts were steeped in waves of volupsy of the very purest nature. Having requested a quart of buttermilk, this was brought, and evidently afforded relief. Asked if he had any message for the living, he exhorted all who were still at the wrong side of Meye to acknowledge the true path, for it was reported in the Vanic circles that Mars and Jupiter were out for mischief on the eastern angle, where the ram has power. It was then queried whether there were any special desires on the part of the defunct, and the reply was... We greet you, friends of Earth, who are still in the body. Mind, CK doesn't pile it on. It was ascertained that the reference was to Mr. Cornelius Kelleher, manager of Messrs. H.J. O'Neill's popular funeral establishment, a personal friend of the defunct, who had been responsible for the carrying out of the interment arrangements. Before departing, he requested that it should be told to his dear son Patsy that the other boot which he had been looking for was at present under the commode in the return room and that the pair should be sent to Collins to be sold only as the heels were still good. He stated that this had greatly perturbed his peace of mind in the other region and earnestly requested that his desire should be made known. Assurances were given that the matter would be attended to, and it was intimated that this had given satisfaction. He is gone from mortal haunts, O dignum son of our morning. Fleet was his foot on the bracken, Patrick of the beamy brow. Wail, Banba, with your wind, and wail, O ocean, with your whirlwind. There he is again, says the citizen, staring out. How, says I? Bloom, says he. He's on point duty up and down there for the last ten minutes. And big up, I saw his physog do a peep in and then slither off again. Little Alf was knocked barways. Faith, he was. Good Christ! Says he. I could have sworn it was him. And says Bob Jordan, with the hat on the back of his pole, lowest blackguard in Dublin when he's under the influence. Who said Christ is good? I beg your parsnips, says Alf. 
Is that a good Christ? Says Bob Jordan. To take away poor little Willie Jignam? Ah, well. Says Alf, trying to pass it off. He's over all his troubles. But Bob Jordan shouts out of him. He's a bloody ruffian, I say. To take away poor little Willie Jignam. Terry came down and tipped him the wink to keep quiet. That they didn't want that kind of talk on a respectable licensed premises. And Bob Jordan starts doing the weeps about Paddy Dignam. True as you're there. The finest man, says he, snivelling. The finest, purest character. The tear is bloody near your eye, talking through his bloody hat. Fetter for him to go home to the little sleepwalking bitch he married. Mooney, the bum bailiff's daughter. Mother kept a kip in Hardwick Street. The gist was vaguing about the landings. Bantam Lyons told me that I was stopping there at two in the morning without a stitch in her, exposing her person open to all comers, fair field and no favour. The noblest, the truest, says he. And he's gone. Poor little Willie. Poor little Patty Jingham. And mournful and with her heavy heart, he bewept the extinction of that beam of heaven. Old Gary Owen started growling again at Bloom that was skeezing round the door. Come in, come on, he won't eat you, says the citizen. So Bloom slopes in with his cod's eye on the dog and he asks Terry, was Martin Cunningham there? Oh, Christ, McHugh, says Joe, reading one of the letters. Listen to this, will you? And he starts reading out one. Seven Hunter Street, Liverpool, to the High Sheriff of Dublin, Dublin. Honoured sir, I beg to offer my services in the above-mentioned painful case. I hanged Joe Gann in Bootle Jail on the 12th of February 1900, and I hanged... Show us, Joe, says I. Private Arthur Chase for foul murder of Jesse Tilsit in Pentonville Prison, and I was assistant when... Jesus, says I. Billington executed the awful murderer, Toad Smith. The citizen made a grab at the letter. Hold on, says Joe. I have a special knack of putting the noose once in he can't get out. Hoping to be favoured, I remain honoured, sir. My terms is five guineas. H. Rumbold, Master Barber. And a barbarous bloody barbarian he is, too, says the citizen. And the dirty scrawl at the wretch, says Joe. Here, says he. Take them to hell out of my sight, Alf. Hello, Bloom, says he. What will you have? So they started arguing him about the point. Bloom saying he wouldn't uh, and couldn't and uh, excuse him, no offence and all to that. And then he said, well, he'd just take a cigar. Gob, he's a prudent member and no mistake. Give us one of your prime stinkers, Terry, says Joe. And Alf was telling us there was one chap sent in a mourning card with a black border round it. They're all barbers, says he, from the black country that would hang their own fathers for five quid down on travelling expenses. And he was telling us there's two fellas waiting below to pull his heels down when he gets the drop and choke him properly. And then they chop up the rope after and sell the bits for a few bob a school. In the dark land they bide, the vengeful knights of the razor. Their deadly coil they grasp, yea, and therein they lead to Erebus whatsoever white hath done a deed of blood. For I will on no wise suffer it, even so saith the Lord. So they started talking about capital punishment. And, of course, Bloom comes out with the why and the wherefore and all the cardology of the business and the old dog smelling him all the time. 
I'm told those Jewies just have a sort of a queer odour coming off them for dogs about. I don't know what all the deterrent effect and so forth and so on. There's one thing it hasn't the deterrent effect on, says Alf. What's that? says Joe. The poor bugger's tool that's been hanged, says Alf. That's so, says Joe. God's truth, says Alf. I heard that from the headwater that was in Kilmainham when they hanged Joe Brady, the Invincible. He told me when they cut him down after the drop, it was standing up in their faces like a poker. Ruling passion strong in death, says Joe. As someone said. That can be explained by science, says Bloom. It's only a natural phenomenon, don't you see? Because on account of the... And then he starts with his jawbreakers about phenomenon and science and this phenomenon and the other phenomenon. The distinguished scientist, Herr Professor Leutpold Blumendoft, tendered medical evidence to the effect that the instantaneous fracture of the cervical vertebrae and consequent scission of the spinal cord would, according to the best-approved traditions of medical science, be calculated to inevitably produce in the human subject a violent ganglionic stimulus of the nerve centres causing the pores of the corpora carvanosa to rapidly dilate in such a way as to instantaneously facilitate the flow of blood to that part of the human anatomy known as the penis or male organ, resulting in the phenomenon which has been denominated by the faculty a morbid upwards and outwards philoprogenitive erection in articulo mortis per diminutionum capitis. So, of course, the citizen was only waiting for the wink of the word, and he starts gassing out of him about the Invincibles, and the old guard, and the men of 67, and who fears to speak of 98, and Joe with them about all the fellows that were hanged, drawn, and transported for the cause by Drumhead Court Martial, and a New Ireland, and New This, That, and the Other. Talking about New Ireland... He ought to go and get a new dog, so he ought. Mangy, ravenous, brute, sniffling and sneezing all round the place and scratching his scabs. And round he goes to Bob Doran that was standing alpha half one, sucking up for what he could get. So, of course, Bob Doran starts doing the bloody fool with him. Give us the paw. Give the paw, Chucky. Good old Chucky. Give us the paw here. Give us the paw. Ere a bloody end to the paw he'd paw, and Alf trying to keep him from tumbling off the bloody stool atop of the bloody old dog, and he talking all kinds of drivel about training by kindness, and thoroughbred dog, and intelligent dog. Give you the bloody pip. Then he starts scraping a few bits of old biscuit out of the bottom of a Jacob's tin he told Terry to bring. God, he galloped it down like old boots, and his tongue hanging out of him a yard long for more. Near ate the tin and all, hungry bloody mongrel. And the citizen and Bloom having an argument about the point, the brothers Shears, and Wolf Town beyond on Arbor Hill, and Robert Dammit, and Die for Your Country, the Tommy Moore touch about Sarah Cudden and she's far from the land. And Bloom, of course, with his knock-me-down cigar, putting on swank with his lardy face. Phenomenon. The fat heap he married is a nice old phenomenon, with a back on her like a ball alley. Time they were stopping up in the city arms, 
Pisserberg told me there was an old one there with a cracked luther a man of a nephew, and Bloom trying to get the soft side of her, doing the molly cuddle, playing basic to come in for a bit of the wampum in her will, and not eating meat of a Friday, because the old one was always thumping her craw and taking the lout out for a walk. And one time he led him the rounds of Dublin, and by the holy farmer he never cried crack till he brought him home as drunk as a boiled owl, and he said he did it to teach him the evils of alcohol. And by herrings, if the three women didn't near roast him. It's a queer story. The old one, Bloom's wife, and Mrs. O'Dowd that kept the hotel. Jesus, I had to laugh at Pissarburg, taking them off, chewing the fat, and Bloom with his, but don't you see, and but on the other hand. And sure more be talking. Their lout, I'm told, was in powers after the blenders, round in Cope Street, going home footless in a cab five times in the week after drinking his way through all the samples in the bloody establishment. Phenomenon. The memory of the dead, says the citizen, taking up his point glass and glaring at Bloom. Aye, aye, says Joe. You don't grasp my point, says Bloom. What I mean is... Sinn Féin, says the citizen. Sinn Féin a one. The friends we love are by our side, and the foes we hate before us. The last farewell was affecting in the extreme. From the belfries far and near, the funereal death bell tolled unceasingly, while all around the gloomy precincts rolled the ominous warning of a hundred muffled drums, punctuated by the hollow booming of pieces of ordnance. The deafening claps of thunder and the dazzling flashes of lightning which lit up the ghastly scene testified that the artillery of heaven had lent its supernatural pomp to the already gruesome spectacle. A torrential rain poured down from the floodgates of the angry heavens upon the bared heads of the assembled multitude, which numbered, at the lowest computation, 500,000 persons. A posse of Dublin Metropolitan Police, superintended by the Chief Commissioner in person, maintained order in the vast throng, for whom the Oak Street Brass and Reed Band whiled away the intervening time by admirably rendering on their black-draped instruments the matchless melody endeared to us from the cradle by Speranza's plaintive muse. Special quick excursion trains and upholstered charabancs had been provided for the comfort of our country cousins, of whom there were large contingents. Considerable amusement was caused by the favourite Dublin street singers Lenehan and Mulligan, who sang The Night Before Larry Was Stretched in their usual mirth-provoking fashion. Our two inimitable drolls did a roaring trade with their broadsheets among lovers of the comedy element, and nobody who has a corner in his heart for real Irish fun without vulgarity will grudge them their hard-earned pennies. The children of the male and female foundling hospital, who thronged the windows overlooking the scene, were delighted with this unexpected addition to the day's entertainment, and a word of praise is due to the little sisters of the poor for their excellent idea of affording the poor, fatherless and motherless children a genuinely instructive treat. The vice-regal house party, which included many well-known ladies, was chaperoned by their excellencies to the most favourable positions on the grandstand, while the picturesque foreign delegation, known as the Friends of the Emerald Isle, was accommodated on a tribune directly opposite. The delegation, present in full force, consisted of Commendatore Bacci Bacci Benino Benone, the semi-paralysed doyon of the party, who had to be assisted to his seat by the aid of a powerful steam crane, Monsieur Pierre-Paul Petite-Paton, 
the Grand Joker Vladimir Pocket Handkerchief, the Arch Joker Leopold Rudolf von Schwanzenbad Hodenthaler, Countess Marha Viraga Kizatoni Putrapesti, Hiram Y. Bomboost, Count Athanatos Karamalopoulos, Ali Baba Bakshish Rahat Locum Effendi, Senor Hidalgo Caballero Don Picadillo y Palabras y Paranoster de la Malora de la Malaria, Hoko Poco Harakiri, He Hung Chang, Olaf Koberkedelsen, Meinheer Trick van Trumps, Pan Polax Padiriski, Goosepond Procrustor Kratchina Britchesich, Herr Hurhaus Director President Hans Tretchley Steuerly, National Gymnasium, Museum, Sanatorium and Suspensoriums, Ordinary Privat Docent, General History Special Professor Dr. Kriegfried Überallgemein. All the delegates, without exception, expressed themselves in the strongest possible heterogeneous terms concerning the nameless barbarity which they had been called upon to witness. An animated altercation, in which all took part, ensued among FOTEI as to whether the 8th or the 9th of March was the correct date of the birth of Ireland's patron saint. In the course of the argument, cannonballs, scimitars, boomerangs, blunderbusses, stink pots, meat choppers, umbrellas, catapults, knuckle dusters, sandbags, lumps of pig iron were resorted to, and blows were freely exchanged. The baby policeman, Constable McFadden, summoned by special courier from Booterstown, quickly restored order, and with lightning promptitude proposed the 17th of the month as a solution equally honourable for both contending parties. The ready-witted nine-footer suggestion at once appealed to all and was unanimously accepted. Constable McFadden was heartily congratulated by all the FOTEI, several of whom were bleeding profusely. Commendatore Benino Benone, having been extricated from underneath the presidential armchair, it was explained by his legal adviser, Avocato Pagamimi, that the various articles secreted in his 32 pockets had been abstracted by him during the affray from the pockets of his junior colleagues in the hope of bringing them to their senses. The objects, which included several hundred ladies' and gentlemen's gold and silver watches, were promptly restored to their rightful owners, and general harmony reigned supreme. Quietly, unassumingly, Rumbold stepped onto the scaffold in faultless morning dress and wearing his favourite flower, the Gladiolus Cruentus. He announced his presence by that gentle Rumboldian cough which so many have tried unsuccessfully to imitate, short, painstaking, yet withal so characteristic of the man. The arrival of the world-renowned headsman was greeted by a roar of acclamation from the huge concourse, the viceregal ladies waving their handkerchiefs in their excitement, while the even more excitable foreign delegates cheered vociferously in a medley of cries, Hoch, Bansai, Elchen, Givio, Chinchin, Polacronia, Hip, Hip, Vive, Allah, amid which the ringing Eviva of the delegates of the Land of Song, a high double F recalling those piercingly lovely notes with which the eunuch Catalani beglamoured our great-great-grandmothers, was easily distinguishable. It was exactly 17 o'clock. The signal for prayer was then promptly given by megaphone, and in an instant all heads were bared. The commendatories, patriarchal sombrero, which has been in the possession of his family since the revolution of Rienzi, being removed by his medical adviser in attendance, Dr. Peepy. The learned prelate who administered the last comforts of holy religion to the hero martyr when about to pay the death penalty knelt in a most Christian spirit in a pool of rainwater, his cassock above his hoary head, and offered up to the throne of grace fervent prayers of supplication. Hard by the block stood the grim figure of the executioner, his visage being concealed in a ten-gallon pot with two circular perforated apertures through which his eyes glowered furiously.
as he awaited the fatal signal, he tested the edge of his horrible weapon by honing it upon his brawny forearm, or decapitated in rapid succession a flock of sheep which had been provided by the admirers of his fell but necessary office. On a handsome mahogany table near him were neatly arranged the quartering knife, the various finely tempered disembowelling appliances specially supplied by the world-famous firm of cutlers, Messrs John Round and Sons, Sheffield, a terracotta saucepan for the reception of the duodenum, colon, blind intestine and appendix, etc., when successfully extracted, and two commodious milk jugs destined to receive the most precious blood of the most precious victim. The house steward of the amalgamated cats and dogs home was in attendance to convey these vessels when replenished to that beneficent institution. Quite an excellent repast consisting of rashers and eggs, fried steak and onions done to a nicety, delicious hot breakfast rolls and invigorating tea had been considerately provided by the authorities for the consumption of the central figure of the tragedy, who was in capital spirits when prepared for death, and evinced the keenest interest in the proceedings from beginning to end. But he, with an abnegation rare in these our times, rose nobly to the occasion and expressed the dying wish, immediately acceded to, that the meal should be divided in aliquot parts among the members of the Sick and Indigent Roomkeepers Association, as a token of his regard and esteem. The neck and nonplus ultra of emotion were reached when the blushing bride-elect burst her way through the serried ranks of the bystanders and flung herself upon the muscular bosom of him who was about to be launched into eternity for her sake. The hero folded her willowy form in a loving embrace, murmuring fondly, Sheila, my own. Encouraged by this use of her Christian name, she kissed passionately all the various suitable areas of his person which the decencies of prison garb permitted her ardour to reach. She swore to him as they mingled the salt streams of their tears that she would cherish his memory, that she would never forget her hero boy who went to his death with a song on his lips as if he were but going to a hurling match in Clonturk Park. She brought back to his recollection the happy days of blissful childhood together on the banks of Anna Liffey, when they had indulged in the innocent pastimes of the young, and, oblivious of the dreadful present, they both laughed heartily, all the spectators, including the venerable pastor, joining in the general merriment. That monster audience simply rocked with delight. But anon they were overcome with grief, and clasped their hands for the last time. A fresh torrent of tears burst from their lacrimal ducts, and the vast concourse of people, touched to the inmost core, broke into heart-rending sobs, not the least affected being the aged prebendary himself. Big, strong men, officers of the peace and genial giants of the Royal Irish Constabulary were making frank use of their handkerchiefs, and it is safe to say that there was not a dry eye in that record assemblage. A most romantic incident occurred when a handsome young Oxford graduate, noted for his chivalry towards the fair sex, stepped forward and, presenting his visiting card, bank book and genealogical tree, solicited the hand of the hapless young lady, requesting her to name the day, and was accepted on the spot. Every lady in the audience was presented with a tasteful souvenir of the occasion in the shape of a skull and crossbones brooch, a timely and generous act which evoked a fresh outburst of emotion. And when the gallant young Oxonian, the bearer, by the way, of one of the most time-honoured names in Albion's history, placed on the finger of his blushing fiancée an expensive engagement ring with emeralds set in the form of a four-leaved shamrock, excitement knew no bounds. Nay, even the stern Provost Marshal, Lieutenant Colonel Tompkin Maxwell French Mullen Tomlinson, who presided on the sad occasion, 
he who had blown a considerable number of sepoys from the cannon mouth without flinching, could not now restrain his natural emotion. With his mailed gauntlet, he brushed away a furtive tear and was overheard by those privileged burghers who happened to be in his immediate entourage to murmur to himself in a faltering undertone, God blimey if she ain't a clinker, that there bleeding tart. Blimey, it makes me kind of bleeding cry. Straight it does when I sees her, cause I thinks of my old mesh tub what's waiting for me down Limehouse Way. So then the citizen begins talking about the Irish language and the corporation meeting and all to that, and the Shoneens that can't speak their own language, and Joe chipping in because he's took someone for the quid, and Bloom putting in his old goo with his twopenny stump that he catched off Joe, and talking about the Gaelic League and the Anti-Treating League and Drink, the Curse of Ireland. Anti-Treating is about the size of it. Gob, he'd let you pour all manner of drink down his throat till the Lord would call him before you'd ever see the froth of his point. And one night I went in with the fellow into one of their musical evenings, song and dance, about she could get up on a truss of hay, she could, my Maureen lay. And there was a fellow with a ballyhooly blue ribbon badge spiffing out of him in Irish, and a lot of Colleen Barnes going about with temperance beverages, and selling medals and oranges and lemonade and a few old dry buns. God, fly, who like entertainment, don't be talking. Ireland sober is Ireland free. And then an old fellow starts blowing into his bagpipes, and all the gougers shuffling their feet to the tune the old cow died of, and one or two skypoids having an eye around that there was no goings on with the females hitting below the belt. So, how and ever, as I was saying, the old dog, seeing the tin was empty, starts mousing around by Joe and me. I'd train him by kindness, so I would if he was my dog. Give him a rousing fine kick now and again where it wouldn't blind him. Afraid he'll bite you, says the citizen, sneering. No, says I, but he might take my leg for a lamppost. So he calls the old dog over. What's on you, Gary? Says he. Then he starts hauling and mauling and talking to him in Irish. And the old chows are growling, letting on to answer like a duet in the opera. Such growling you never heard as they let off between them. Someone that has nothing better to do was to write a letter pro bono publico to the papers about the muzzling order for a dog the like of that. Growling and grousing and his eye all bloodshot from the drought is in it and the hydrophobia dropping out of his jaws. All those who are interested in the spread of human culture among the lower animals and their name is Legion should make a point of not missing the really marvellous exhibition of synanthropy given by the famous old Irish red wolf dog Setter, formerly known by the sobriquet of Gary Owen, and recently rechristened by his large circle of friends and acquaintances, Owen Gary. The exhibition, which is the result of years of training by kindness and a carefully thought-out dietary system, comprises, among other achievements, the recitation of verse. Our greatest living phonetic expert, wild horses shall not drag it from us, has left no stone unturned in his efforts to delucidate and compare the verse recited, and has found it bears a striking resemblance, the italics are ours, 
to the rands of ancient Celtic bards. We are not speaking so much of those delightful love songs with which the writer who conceals his identity under the graceful pseudonym of the little sweet branch has familiarised the book-loving world, but rather, as a contributor, D.O.C. points out in an interesting communication published by an evening contemporary, of the harsher and more personal note which is found in the satirical effusions of the famous Raftery and of Donald McConsidine, to say nothing of a more modern lyrist at present very much in the public eye. We subjoin a specimen which has been rendered into English by an eminent scholar whose name for the moment we are not at liberty to disclose, though we believe that our readers will find the topical allusion rather more than an indication. The metrical system of the canine original which recalls the intricate, alliterative and isosyllabic rules of the Welsh Anglin is infinitely more complicated, but we believe our readers will agree that the spirit has been well caught. Perhaps it should be added that the effect is greatly increased if Owen's verse be spoken somewhat slowly and indistinctly in a tone suggestive of suppressed rancour. The curse of my curses, seven days every day, and seven dry Thursdays on you, Barney Kiernan, has no sup of water to cool my courage and my guts red roaring after Lowry's lights. So he told Terry to bring some water for the dog, and Gob, you could hear him lapping it up a mile off. And Joe asked him, would he have another? I will, says he. Uh, Hannah, to show there's no ill feeling. Gob, he's not as green as his cabbage looking. Passing around from one pub to another, leaving it your own honour, with old Giltrap's dog and getting fed up by the ratepayers and corporators. Entertainment for man and beast. And says Joe, Could you make a hole in another point? Could I swim duck, says I. Same again, Terry, says Joe. Are you sure you won't have anything in the way of liquid refreshment? Says he. Thank you, no, says Bloom. As a matter of fact, I just wanted to meet Martin Cunningham, don't you see? About this insurance of poor Dignam's. Martin asked me to go to the house. You see, he, Dignam, I mean, didn't serve any notice of the assignment on the company at the time and nominally under the act the mortgagee can't recover on the policy. Holy wars, says Joe, laughing. That's a good one if old Shylock is landed. So the wife comes out top dog, what? Well, that's a point, says Bloom. For the wife's admirers. Who's admirers, says Joe. Uh, the wife's advisers, I mean, says Bloom. Then he starts all confused, mucking it up about the mortgage jar under the act, like the Lord Chancellor giving it out on the bench, and for the benefit of the wife, and that a trust is created, but on the other hand that Dignam owed Bridgeman the money, and if now the wife or the widow contested the mortgagee's right, till he near had the head of me addled with his mortgage jar under the act. He was bloody safe he wasn't running himself under the act that time as a rogue and vagabond, only he had a friend in court. Selling bazaar tickets, or what do you call it, Royal Hungarian Privileged Lottery. True as you're there. Oh, commend me to an Israelite. Royal and Privileged Hungarian Robbery. So Bob Dorden comes lurching around asking Bloom to tell Mrs Dignam he was sorry for her trouble and he was very sorry about the funeral and to tell her that he said and everyone who knew him said that there was never a truer, a finer than poor little Willie that's dead to tell her. 
choking with bloody foolery and shaking Bloom's hand, doing the tragic to tell her that. Shake hands, brother, you're a rogue and I'm another. Let me, said he, so far presume upon our acquaintance, which, however slight it may appear, if judged by the standard of mere time, is founded, as I hope and believe, on a sentiment of mutual esteem, as to request of you this favour. But should I have overstepped the limits of reserve, let the sincerity of my feelings be the excuse for my boldness. No, rejoined the other. I appreciate to the full the motives which actuate your conduct, and I shall discharge the office you entrust to me, consoled by the reflection that, though the errand be one of sorrow, this proof of your confidence sweetens in some measure the bitterness of the cup. Then suffer me to take your hand, said he. The goodness of your heart, I feel sure, will dictate to you better than my inadequate words the expressions which are most suitable to convey an emotion whose poignancy, were I to give vent to my feelings, would deprive me even of speech. And off with him and out, trying to walk straight. Fused at five o'clock. Night he was near being lagged, only Paddy Leonard knew the bobby, fourteen hour. Blind to the world up in a she-been in Bride Street after closing to him, fornicating with two shawls, and a bully on guard, drinking porter at a teacups, and calling himself a Frenchie for the shawls, Joseph Manuel, and talking against the Catholic religion, and he's having mass in Adam and Eve's when he was young, with his eyes shut, who wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament, and hugging and smugging, and the two shawls killed with the laughing, picking his pockets, the bloody fool, and he swelling the porter all over the bed, and the two shawls screeching, laughing at one another. How is your testament? Have you got an old testament? Only Paddy was passing there, I tell you what. And then see him of a Sunday with his little concubine of a wife, and she wagging her tail up the aisle of the chapel with her patent boots on her, no less, and her violets, nice as pie, doing the little lady, Jack Mooney's sister, and the old prostitute of her mother procuring rooms to street couples. God, Jack made him tow the line. Told him if he didn't patch up the pot, Jesus, he'd kick the shite out of him. So Terry brought the three points. Here. Says Joe, doing the honours. Here, citizen. Slow lad. Says he. Fortune, Joe, says I. Good health, citizen. Gob, he had his mouth halfway down the tumbler already. Want a small fortune to keep him in drinks. Who is the long fella running for the mayoralty, Alf? Says Joe. Friend of yours. Says Alf. Nanan. Says Joe. A member. We won't mention any names. Says Alf. I thought so. Says Joe. I saw him up at that meeting now with William Field, MP, the cattle traders. Here he I opus. Says the citizen. That exploded volcano. The darling of all countries and the idol of his own. So Joe starts telling the citizen about the foot and mouth disease and the cattle traders and taking action in the matter and the citizens sending them all to the right about and Bloom coming out with his sheep dip for the scab and a hoost wrench for coughing calves and the guaranteed remedy for timber tongue because he was up one time in a knacker's yard 
walking about with his book and pencil. Here's me head and me heels are coming. Till Joe Cuff gave him the order of the boot for giving lip to a grazier. Mr. Nowall, teach your grandmother how to milk ducks. Pissop work was telling me in the hotel the wife used to be in rivers of tears sometimes, with Mrs. O'Dowd crying her eyes out with her eight inches of fat all over her. Couldn't loosen her farting strings, but old Codsey was waltzing around her showing her how to do it. What's your programme today? Aye, humane methods, because the poor animals suffer, and experts say, and the best-known remedy that doesn't cause pain to the animal, and on the sore spot administer gently. Gob, he'd have a soft hand under a hen. Black Liz is our hen. She lays eggs for us. When she lays her egg, she is so glad. Gara! Look, look, look! Then comes good Uncle Leo. He puts his hand under Black Liz and takes her fresh egg. Gara! Anyhow, says Joe, Field and Nanetti are going over tonight to London to ask about it on the floor of the House of Commons. Are you sure, says Bloom, the councillor is going? I wanted to see him as it happens. Well, he's going off by the mailboat, says Joe. Tonight? That's too bad, says Bloom. I want it particularly. Perhaps only Mr. Field is going. I couldn't phone, no. You're sure? Nanan's going too, says Joe. The League told him to ask a question tomorrow about the Commissioner of Police forbidden Irish games in the park. <laughs> What do you think of that citizen, the slewer na heron? Mr. Carl Kanaker, Multifarnham Nat. Arising out of the question of my honourable friend, the member for Shillelagh, may I ask the right honourable gentleman whether the government has issued orders that these animals shall be slaughtered, though no medical evidence is forthcoming as to their pathological condition? Mr. Allfors, Tamoshant Khan. Honourable members are already in possession of the evidence produced before a committee of the whole house. I feel I cannot usefully add anything to that. The answer to the honourable member's question is in the affirmative. Mr. O'Reilly, Montenotti Nat. Have similar orders been issued for the slaughter of human animals who dare to play Irish games in the Phoenix Park? Mr. Allfors. The answer is in the negative. Mr. Carl Kanaker. Has the right honourable gentleman's famous Mitchellstown telegram inspired the policy of gentlemen on the Treasury bench? Oh, oh. Mr. Allfors. I must have notice of that question. Mr. Stalewood, Buncombe Ind. Don't hesitate to shoot. Ironical opposition cheers. The Speaker. Order! Order! The House rises. Cheers. There's the man, says Joe, that made the Gaelic sports revival. There he is sitting there. The man that got away, James Stevens, the champion of all Ireland at putting the 16-pound shot. What was your best throw, citizen? No backlash, says the citizen, letting on to be modest. There was a time I was as good as the next fellow anyhow. Put it there, citizen, says Joe. You were and a bloody sight better. Is that really a fact? Says Alf. Yes, says Bloom. Uh, that's well known. Do you not know that? So off they started about her sport and shown in games the like of the lawn tennis and about Hurley, and putting the stone, and racy of the soil, and building up a nation once again, and all of that. 
And, of course, Bloom had to have his say, too, about if a fella had a rower's heart, violence exercise was bad. Well, declare to me, Auntie Macassar, if you took up a straw from the bloody floor and if you said to Bloom, look at Bloom, do you see that straw? That's a straw. Declare to me, Aunt, he'd talk about it for an hour, so he would, and talk steady. A most interesting discussion took place in the ancient hall of Brian O'Kermans in Sroidnabrachanavjag, under the auspices of Sloan Heron, on the revival of ancient Gaelic sports and the importance of physical culture, as understood in ancient Greece and ancient Rome and ancient Ireland, for the development of the race. The venerable president of this noble order was in the chair, and the attendance was of large dimensions. After an instructive discourse by the chairman, a magnificent oration eloquently and forcibly expressed, a most interesting and instructive discussion of the usual high standard of excellence ensued as to the desirability of the revivability of the ancient games and sports of our ancient pan-Celtic forefathers. The well-known and highly respected worker in the cause of our old tongue, Mr. Joseph McCarthy Hines, made an eloquent appeal for the resuscitation of the ancient Gaelic sports and pastimes practised morning and evening by Finn McCool, as calculated to revive the best traditions of manly strength and power handed down to us from ancient ages. L. Bloom, who met with a mixed reception of applause and hisses, having espoused the negative, the vocalist chairman brought the discussion to a close in response to repeated requests and hearty plaudits from all parts of a bumper house by a remarkably noteworthy rendering of the immortal Thomas Osborne Davis's evergreen verses, happily too familiar to need recalling here, and nation once again, in the execution of which the veteran patriot champion may be said without fear of contradiction to have fairly excelled himself. The Irish Caruso Garibaldi was in superlative form, and his stentorian notes were heard to the greatest advantage in the time-honoured anthem sung as only our citizen can sing it. His superb high-class vocalism, which by its super-quality greatly enhanced his already international reputation, was vociferously applauded by the large audience, amongst which were to be noticed many prominent members of the clergy, as well as representatives of the press and the bar and the other learned professions. The proceedings then terminated. Amongst the clergy present were the Very Reverend William Delaney, S.J., L.L.D., the Right Reverend Gerald Malloy, D.D., the Reverend P.J. Kavanagh, C.S., S.P., the Reverend T. Waters, C.C., the Reverend John M. Ivers, P.P., the Reverend P.J. Cleary, O.S.F., the Reverend L.J. Hickey, O.P., the Very Reverend Father Nicholas, O.S.F.C., the Very Reverend B. Gorman, O.D.C., the Reverend T. Marr, S.J., the Very Reverend James Murphy, S.J., the Reverend John Lavery, V.F., the Very Reverend William Doherty, D.D., the Reverend Peter Fagan, O.M., the Reverend T. Brangan, O.S.A., the Reverend J. Flavin, C.C., the Reverend M.A. Hackett, C.C., the Reverend W. Hurley, C.C., the Right Reverend Monsignor McManus, V.G., the Reverend B.R. Slattery, O.M.I., the Very Reverend M.D. Scally, P.P., the Reverend F.T. Purcell, O.P., the Very Reverend Timothy Cannon Gorman, P.P., the Reverend J. Flanagan, C.C., the laity included P. Fay, T. Quirk, etc., etc. Talking about violent exercise, says Alf. Were you at that Kyo Bennett match? No, says Joe. I heard so-and-so made a cool hundred quid over it, says Alf. Who? Blazes, says Joe. 
and says Bloom. What I meant about tennis, for example, is the agility and training of the eye. Oh, blazes, says Alf. He let out that Moiler was on the beer to run the odds, and he's swatting all the time. We know him, says the citizen. The traitor's son. We know what put English gold in his pocket. Through for you, says Joe. And Bloom cuts in again about lawn tennis and the circulation of the blood, asking Alf. Now, don't you think, Bergen? Moiler dusted the floor with him, says Alf. Heenan and Sears is only a bloody fool to it. And it am the father and mother of a beating. See the little kipper, not up to his navel, and the big fella swiping. God, he gave him one last puck in the wind. Queensbury rules and all, made him puke what he never ate. It was a historic and a hefty battle when Myler and Percy were scheduled to don the gloves for the purse of 50 sovereigns. Handicapped as he was by lack of poundage, Dublin's pet lamb made up for it by superlative skill in ringcraft. The final bout of fireworks was a gruelling for both champions. The welterweight sergeant major had tapped some lively claret in the previous mix-up, during which Kyo had been receiver general of rights and lefts, the artilleryman putting in some neat work on the pet's nose, and Myla came on looking groggy. The soldier got to business, leading off with a powerful left jab to which the Irish gladiator retaliated by shooting out a stiff one flush to the point of Bennett's jaw. The red coat ducked, but the Dubliner lifted him with a left hook, the body punch being a fine one. The men came to handy grips. Myla quickly became busy and got his man under, the bout ending with the bulkier man on the ropes, Myla punishing him. The Englishman, whose right eye was nearly closed, took his corner where he was liberally drenched with water and, when the bell went, came on, gamey and brimful of pluck, confident of knocking out the fistic Eblonite in jig time. It was a fight to a finish and the best man for it. The two fought like tigers and excitement ran fever high. The referee twice cautioned pucking Percy for holding, but the pet was tricky, and his footwork a treat to watch. After a brisk exchange of courtesies, during which a smart uppercut of the military man brought blood freely from his opponent's mouth, the lamb suddenly waded in all over his man and landed a terrific left to battling Bennett's stomach, floating him flat. It was a knockout, clean and clever. Amid tense expectation... The Porta Bella Bruiser was being counted out when Bennett's second old Fats Wettstein threw in the towel and the Sandry boy was declared victor to the frenzied cheers of the public who broke through the ring ropes and fairly mobbed him with delight. He knows which side his bread is butter, says Alf. I hear he's running a concert tour now, up in the north. He is, says Joe. Isn't he? Who? says Bloom. Ah, yes, that's quite true. Yes, a kind of summer tour, you see. Just a holiday. Mrs. B is the bright particular star, isn't she? Says Joe. Uh, my wife? Says Bloom. Uh, she's singing, yes. I think it will be a success, too. He's an excellent man to organise. Excellent. Ho, ho, big gob, says I to myself, says I. That explains the milk and the coconut and absence of hair on the animal's chest. Blaze is doing the tootle on the flute. Concert tour. Dirty down the Dodger son of Island Bridge that sold the same horses twice over to the government to fight the Boers. Old what what? I called about the poor and water rate, Mr. Boylan. You what? The water rate, Mr. Boylan. You what what? That's the book of that organiser. Take my tip. Twixt me and you, Catherish. Pride of Calpe's rocky mount, the raven-haired daughter of Tweedy, 
There grew she to peerless beauty, where Lockwood and Armand sent the air. The gardens of Alameda knew her step, the garths of olives knew and bowed. The chaste spouse of Leopold is she, Marion of the bountiful bosoms. And lo, there entered one of the clan of the Omeloys, a comely hero of white face, yet withal somewhat ruddy, his majesty's counsel learned in the law, and with him the prince and heir of the noble line of Lambert. Hello, Ned. Hello, Welf. Hello, Jack. Hello, Joe. God save you. Says the citizen. Save you kindly. Says J.J. What'll it be, Ned? Half one. Says Ned. So, J.J., you ordered the drinks. Were you round at the court? Says Joe. Yes. Says J.J. He'd square that, Ned. Says he. Hope so. Says Ned. Now, what were those two at? J.J. getting him off the grand jury list and the other giving him a leg over the stile with his name in stubs, playing cards, hobnobbing with flash tops with a swank glass in their eye, drinking fizz and he half smothered in writs and garnishy orders, pawning his gold watch in Cummins of Francis Street where no one would know him, in the private office when I was there with piss of releasing his boots out of the pup. What's your name, sir? Dunn, says he. Aye, and Dunn, says I. God, he'll come home by weeping cross one of these days, I'm thinking. Did you see that bloody lunatic brain round there? Says Elf. You pay up. Yes. Says JJ. Looking for a private detective. Aye. Says Ned. And he wanted right go wrong to address the court. Only Corny Kelleher got round him telling him to get the handwriting examined first. Ten thousand pounds. <laughs> Says Alf laughing. God, I'd give anything to hear him before a judge and jury. Was it you did it, Alf? Says Joe. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you Jimmy Johnson. Me. Says Alf. Don't cast your distortions on my character. Whatever statement you make. Says Joe. Will be taken down in evidence against you. Of course an action would lie, says J.J. It implies that he is not compass mentis. You pee up. Compass your eye, <laughs> says Alf, laughing. Do you know that he's balmy? Look at his head. Do you know that some mornings he has to get his hat on with a shoehorn? Yes, <laughs> says J.J. But the truth of a libel is no defence to an indictment for publishing it in the eyes of the law. Ha ha, Alf, says Joe. Still, says Bloom, on account of the poor woman, I mean his wife, pity about her, says the citizen. Or any other woman marries a half and half. How half and half, says Bloom. Do you mean he... Half and half, I mean, says the citizen. A fella that's neither fish nor flesh. No good redheading, says Joe. That's what I mean, says the citizen. A pishog, if you know what that is. Big gob, I saw there was trouble coming. And Bloom explained he meant on account of it being cruel for the wife having to go round after the old stuttering fowl. Cruelty to animals, so it is, to let that bloody poverty-stricken Breen out on grass with his beard out, tripping him, bringing down the rain. And she with her nose cock-a-hoop after she married him, because the cousin of his old fellows was pew-opener to the Pope. Picture of him on the wall with his smash-old Sweeney's moustaches. The senior Breeny from Summerhill, the Italiano, papers a wave to the Holy Father, has left the quay and gone to Moss Street. And who was he, tell us? A nobody, two pair back and passages at seven shillings a week, and he covered with all kinds of breastplates, bidding defiance to the world. And moreover, says J.J., a postcard is publication. It was held to be sufficient evidence of malice in the test case Sadgrove v. Hole. In my opinion, an action might lie. Six and eightpence, please. Who wants your opinion? Let us think our points in peace. God, we won't be let even do that much itself. 
Well, good health, Jack, says Ned. Good health, Ned, says JJ. There he is again, says Joe. Where? Says Alf. And be gob, there he was, passing the door with his books under his oxter, and the wife beside him, and Connie Keller with his wall-eye looking in as they went past, talking to him like a father trying to sell him a second-hand coffin. How did that Canada swindle case go off? Says Joe. Remanded, says JJ. One of the bottle-nosed fraternities was, went by the name of James Walsh, alias Sapphiro, alias Spark and Spiro. Put an ad in the paper saying he'd give a passage to Canada for 20 pub. What? Do you see any green in the white of my eye? Course it was a bloody Barney. What? Swindled them all, skiwies and badocks from the county maid. Aye, and his own kidney too. J.J. was telling us there was an ancient Hebrew, Zaretsky or something, weeping in the witness box with his hat on him, swearing by the holy Moses he was stuck for two quid. Who tried the case? Says Joe. Recorder. Says Ned. Poor old Sir Frederick. Says Alf. You can cut him up to the two eyes. Heart as big as a lion. Says Ned. Tell him a tale of woe about arrears of rent and a sick wife and a squad of kids and faith he'll dissolve in tears on the bench. Aye. Says Alf. Reuben Jay was bloody lucky he didn't clap him in the dock the other day. For suing poor little Gumley that's mining stones for the corporation there near Butbridge. And he starts taking off the old recorder, letting Anza cry. A most scandalous thing. This poor, hard-working man. How many children? Ten, did you say? Yes, your worship. And my wife has the typhoid. And a wife with typhoid fever. Scandalous. Leave the court immediately, sir. No, sir. I'll make no order for payment. How dare you, sir, come up before me and ask me to make an order? A poor, hard-working, industrious man. I dismiss the case. And whereas on the sixteenth day of the month of the Oxide Goddess, and in the third week after the feast day of the Holy and Undivided Trinity, the daughter of the skies, the Virgin Moon, being then in her first quarter, it came to pass that those learned judges repaired them to the halls of law. There, Master Courtenay, sitting in his own chamber, gave his read, and Master Justice Andrews, sitting without a jury in the probate court, weighed well and pondered the claims of the first chargent upon the property in the matter of the will propounded and final testamentary disposition in re the real and personal estate of the late lamented Jacob Halliday, vintner, deceased, versus Livingston, an infant of unsound mind, and another. And to the solemn court of Green Street there came Sir Frederick the Falconer, and he sat him there about the hour of five o'clock to administer the law of the Brehens at the commission for all that and those parts to be holden in and for the county of the city of Dublin. And there sat with him the high Sanhedrim of the twelve tribes of Yah, for every tribe one man, of the tribe of Patrick, and of the tribe of Hugh, and of the tribe of Owen, and of the tribe of Con, and of the tribe of Oscar, and of the tribe of Fergus, and of the tribe of Finn, and of the tribe of Dermot, and of the tribe of Cormac, and of the tribe of Kevin, and of the tribe of Quilcher, and of the tribe of Ossian, there being in all twelve good men and true. And he conjured them by him who died on the rood, that they should well and truly try, and true deliverance make, in the issue joined between that sovereign lord, the king, and the prisoner at the bar, and true verdict give, according to the evidence, so help them God, and kiss the books." And they rose in their seats, those twelve of Yah, and they swore by the name of him who is from everlasting that they would do his right wiseness. And straightway the minions of the law let forth from their dungeon keep 
one whom the sleuth-hounds of justice had apprehended in consequence of information received, and they shackled him hand and foot, and would take of him ne bail ne manpreis, but preferred a charge against him, for he was a malefactor. Those are nice things, says the citizen. Coming over here to Ireland, filling the country with bugs. So Bloom lets Annie hear nothing, and he starts talking with Joe, telling him he needn't trouble about that little matter till the first, but if he would just say a word to Mr. Crawford. And so Joe swore high and holy by this and by that he'd do the devil and all. Because, you see, says Bloom, for an advertisement you must have repetition. That's the whole secret. Rely on me, says Joe. Swindling the peasant, says the citizen. And the poor of Ireland. We want no more strangers in our house. Oh, I'm sure that will be all right, Hines. Says Bloom. It's just that the keys, you see. Consider that done, says Joe. Very kind of you, says Bloom. The strangers, says the citizen. Our own fault. We let them come in. We brought them. The adulteress and her paramour brought the Saxon robbers here. Decree Nisi, says J.J. And Bloom let Nant be awfully deeply interested in nothing. A spider's web in the corner behind the barrel, and the citizen scowling after him, and the old dog at his feet looking up to know who to bite and when. A dishonoured wife, says the citizen. That's what's the cause of all our misfortunes. And here she is, says Alf, <laughs> that was giggling over the police gazette with Terry on the counter. In all her war paint. Give us a squint at her, says I. And what was it? Only one of the smutty Yankee pictures Terry borrows off of Carney Kelleher. Secrets for enlarging your private parts. Misconduct of society, Bell. Norman W. Topper, wealthy Chicago contractor, finds pretty but faithless wife in lap of Officer Taylor. Belle and her bloomers misconducting herself and her fancy man feeding for her tickles, and Norman W. Topper bouncing in with his pea-shooter, just in time to be late after she doing the trick of the loop with Officer Taylor. Oh, Jake as Jenny, says Joe. How short your short is? There's her, Joe, says I. Get a queer old tail end according to beef off of that one, what? So anyhow, in came John Wise Nolan and Lenehan with him, with a face on him as long as a late breakfast. Well, says the citizen, what's the latest from the scene of action? What did those tinkers in the city hall at their caucus meeting decide about the Irish language? Oh, Nolan, clad in shining armour, Low-bending, made obeisance to the puissant and high and mighty chief of all Erin, and did him to wit of that which had befallen, how that the grave elders of the most obedient city, second of the realm, had met them in the Thosel, and there, after due prayers to the gods who dwell in ether supernal, had taken solemn counsel, whereby they might... If so be it might be, bring once more into honour among mortal men the winged speech of the sea-divided gale. It's on the march, says the citizen, to hell with the bloody brutal Sassanucks and their patois. So J.J. puts in a word, doing the tough of a one story was good till you heard another, blinking facts, and the Nelson policy, putting your blind eye to the telescope and drawing up a bill of attainder to impeach a nation, and Bloom trying to back him up, 
Moderation and botheration and the colonies and their civilization. Their civilization, you mean? Says the citizen. To hell with them. The curse of a good-for-nothing god light sideways on the bloody thick-lugged sons of whores gets. No music and no art and no literature worthy of the name. Any civilization they have they stole from us. Tongue-tied sons of bastards' ghosts. The European family. Says J.J. They're not European. Says the citizen. I was in Europe with Kevin Egan of Paris. You wouldn't see a trace of the mother language anywhere in Europe, except in the Cabinet des Hommes. And says John Woyce. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen. And says Lenin, that knows a bit of the lingo. He said. And then lifted he in his rude, great, brawny, strengthy hands the mayor of dark, strong, foamy ale. And uttering his tribal slogan, Lyov Djaragabu, he drank to the undoing of his foes, a race of mighty, valorous heroes, rulers of the waves who sit on thrones of alabaster, silent as the deathless god. What's up with you, says Arthur Lenehan? You look like a fella that had lost a bob and found his hammer. Gold cup, says he. Who won, Mr. Lenehan? Says Terry. Throw away, says he. At twenty to one, a rank outsider, and the rest nowhere. And boss's man, says Terry. Still running, says he. We're all in a cart. Boyle and plunge two quid on my tip scepter for himself and a lady friend. I'd have a crew myself, says Terry. On Zin Vandell that Mr. Flynn gave me, Lord Howard de Waldens. Twenty to one, says Lenehan. Such is life in an outhouse. Throw away, says he. Takes the biscuit and talking about bunions, frailty thy name is scepter. So he went over to the biscuit tin Bob Dowden left to see if there was anything he could lift on the knot. The old core after him, backing his look with his mangy snout up. Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboards. Not there, my child. Says he. Keep your pecker up. Says Joe. She'd have won the money, only for the other dog. And J.J. and the citizen arguing about law and history with Bloom sticking in a knot ward. Some people, says Bloom, can't see the moat in others' eyes, but they can't see the beam in their own. Ramish, says the citizen. There's no one as blind as a fellow that won't see, if you know what that means. Where are our missing 20 millions of Irish should be here today, instead of four? Our lost tribes, and our potteries and textiles, the finest in the whole world, and our wool that was sold in Rome in the time of Juvenal, and our flax and our damask from the looms of Antrim, and our limerick lace, our tanneries and our white flint glass down there by Ballybuck, and our Huguenot poplin that we have since Jacquard de Lyon, and our woven silk and our Foxford tweeds, and ivory raised point from the Carmelite convent in New Ross. Nothing like it in the whole wide world. Where are the Greek merchants that came through the pillars of Hercules, the Gibraltar now grabbed by the foe of mankind, with gold and Tyrian purple to sell in Wexford at the fair of Carmen? Read Tacitus and Ptolemy, even Geraldus Cambrensis. Wine, peltries, Connemara marble, silver from Tipperary, second to none. Our far-famed horses, even today. The Irish hobbies with King Philip of Spain offering to pay customs duties for the right to fish in our waters. 
What do the yellow Johns of Anglia owe us for our ruined trade and our ruined hearts? And the beds of the Barrow and Shannon they won't deepen with millions of acres of marsh and bog to make us all die of consumption. As treeless as Portugal will be soon, says John Boyes. Or Heligoland with its one tree if something is not done to reforest the land. Larches, firs, all the trees of the Conifer family are going fast. I was reading a report of Lord Castletown's... Save them, says the citizen. The giant ash of Galway and the chieftain elm of Kildare with a forty-foot bowl and an acre of foliage. Save the trees of Ireland for the future men of Ireland on the fair hills of Era O. Europe has its eyes on you, says Lenahan. The fashionable international world attended en masse this afternoon at the wedding of the chevalier Jean Oise de Nolan, Grand High Chief Ranger of the Irish National Foresters, with Miss Fur Conover of Pine Valley, Lady Sylvester Elmshade, Mrs. Barbara Lurch, Mrs. Paul Ash, Mrs. Holly Hazel-Eyes, Miss Daphne Bays, Miss Dorothy Canebrake, Mrs. Clyde Twelve Trees, Mrs. Rowan Green, Mrs. Helen Vinegadding, Miss Virginia Creeper, Miss Gladys Beach, Miss Olive Garth, Miss Blanche Maple, Mrs. Maud Mahogany, Miss Myra Myrtle, Miss Priscilla Elderflower, Miss B. Honeysuckle, Miss Grace Poplar, Miss O. Mimosa San, Miss Rachel Cedar Frond, the Misses Lillian and Viola Lilac, Miss Timidity Aspinall, Mrs. Kitty Dewey Moss, Miss May Hawthorne, Mrs. Gloriana Palm, Mrs. Leanna Forrest, Mrs. Arabella Blackwood, and Mrs. Norma Holy Oak of Oak Home Regis graced the ceremony by their presence. The bride, who was given away by her father, the MacConifer of the Glans, looked exquisitely charming in a creation carried out in green mercerized silk, moulded on an underslip of gloaming grey, sashed with a yoke of broad emerald, and finished with a triple flounce of darker-hued fringe, the scheme being relieved by pretels and hip insertions of acorn bronze. The maids of honour, Miss Larch Conifer and Miss Spruce Conifer, sisters of the bride, wore very becoming costumes in the same tone, a dainty motif of plume rose being worked into the pleats in a pinstripe, and repeated capriciously in the jay-green toques in the form of heron feathers of pale-tinted coral. Signor Enrique Flora presided at the organ with his well-known ability, and in addition to the prescribed numbers of the nuptial mass, played a new and striking arrangement of Woodman Spare That Tree at the conclusion of the service. On leaving the church of St. Fiacre in Horto, after the papal blessing, the happy pair were subjected to a playful crossfire of hazelnuts, beech mast, bay leaves, catkins of willow, ivy tod, holly berries, mistletoe sprigs, and quicken shoots. Mr. and Mrs. Wise Conifer no long will spend a quiet honeymoon in the Black Forest. And our eyes are on Europe, says the citizen. We had our trade with Spain and the French and with the Flemings before those mongrels were popped. Spanish ale in Galway, 
the wine bark on the wine dark waterway. And will again, says Joe. And with the help of the Holy Mother of God, we will again, says the citizen, clapping his toy. All harbours that are empty will be full again. Queenstown, Kinsale, Galway, Blacksod Bay, Ventry in the Kingdom of Kerry, Killybakes, the third largest harbour in the wide world, with a fleet of masts of the Galway Lynches and the Cavan O'Reillys and the O'Kennedys of Dublin, when the Earl of Desmond could make a treaty with the Emperor Charles V himself. And will again, says he, when the first Irish battleship is seen breasting the waves with our own flag to the fore, none of your Henry Tudor's harps. No, the oldest flag afloat, the flag of the province of Desmond and Thomond. Three crowns on the blue field, the three sons of Miletius. And he took the last swig out of the point, Moya. All wind and piss like a ten-yard cat. Cows and Connacht have long horns. As much as his bloody life is worth to go down and address his tall talk to the assembled multitude in Channa Golden, where he dared not show his nose with the Molly Maguire's looking for him to let daylight through him for grabbing the holding of an evicted tenant. Here, here to that, says John Wise. What do you have? An imperial yeomanry, says Lenahan, to celebrate the occasion. Half one, Terry, says John Wise. And a hands up. Terry, are you asleep? Uh, yes, sir, says Terry. A small whiskey and bottle of Alsop, right, sir? Hanging over the bloody paper with Alf looking for spicy bits instead of attending to the general public. Picture of a boating match, trying to crack their bloody skulls. One chap going for the other with his head down like a bull at a gate. And another one, black beast buttoned in Omaha G.R. A lot of Deadwood Dicks in slouch hats, and they firing at a sambo strung up on a tree with his tongue out and a bonfire under him. God, but they ought to drown him in the sea after and electrocute and crucify him to make sure of their job. But what about the fighting navy? Says Ned. That keeps our foes at bay. I'll tell you what about it, says the citizen. Hell upon earth it is. Read the revelations that's going on in the papers about flogging on the training ships at Portsmouth. A fellow writes that calls himself Disgusted One. So he starts telling us about corporal punishment and about the crew of tars and officers and rear admirals drawn up in cocked hats and the parson with the Protestant Bible to witness punishment and the young lad brought out howling for his ma and to tie him down on the butt end of a gun. A rump and dozen, says the citizen was what that old ruffian Sir John Bellsford called it. But the modern gods Englishman calls it caning on the breach. And says John Wise, It is a custom more honoured in the breach than in the observance. Then he was telling us the master at arms comes along with a long cane, and he draws out and he flogs the bloody backside off of the poor lad till he yells me the murder. That's your glorious British Navy, says the citizen. That bosses the earth. The fellows that never will be slaves, with the only hereditary chamber on the face of God's earth, and their land in the hands of a dozen game hogs and cotton-ball barons. That's the great empire they boast about of drudges and whipped serfs. On which the sun never rises, says Joe. And the tragedy of it is, says the citizen, they believe it, the unfortunate yahoos believe it. They believe in Rod. The scourger almighty, creator of hell upon earth, and in Jackie Tar, the son of a gun, 
who was conceived of unholy boast, born of the fighting navy, suffered under rump and dozen, was scarified, flayed and curried, yelled like bloody hell. The third day he arose again from the bed, steered into haven, sitteth on his beam-end till further orders, whence he shall come to drudge for a living and be paid. But isn't discipline the same everywhere? I mean, wouldn't it be the same here if you put force against force? Didn't I tell you? As true as I'm drinking this porter, if he was at his last gasp, he'd throw to down face you that dying was living. We'll put force against force, says the citizen. We have our greater island beyond the sea. They were driven out of house and home in the Black 47. The mud cabins and their shielings by the roadside were laid low by the battering ram. And the Times rubbed its hands and told the white-livered Saxons there would soon be as few Irish in Ireland as redskins in America. Even the Grand Turk sent us his piastres. But the Sosnok tried to starve the nation at home while the land was full of crops that the British hyenas bought and sold in Rio de Janeiro. Aye, they drove out the peasants in hordes. Twenty thousand of them died in the coffin ships. But those that came to the land of the free remember the land of bondage, and they will come again, and with a vengeance, no cravens, the sons of Granuel, the champions of Kathleen Nihula. Uh, perfectly true, but my point was... We're a long time waiting for that day, citizen, says Ned. Since the poor old woman told us that the French were on the sea and landed at Kalala. Aye, says John Boyce. We fought for the royal stewards that were nagged us against the Williamites, and they betrayed us. Remember Limerick and the broken treaty stone? We gave our best blood to France and Spain. Wild geese, Fontenoy, eh? And Sarsfield and O'Donnell, Duke of Tetuan in Spain. And Ulysses Brown of Camus, that was Field Marshal to Maria Teresa. But what did we ever get for it? The French, says the citizen. Set of dancing masters. You know what it is? They were never worth a roasted fart to Ireland. Aren't they trying to make an entente cordiale now at Tepe's dinner party with perfidious Albion? Firebrands of Europe, and they always were. Conspuelis Francis, says Lenehan, nabbling his beer. And as for the Prussians and the Hanoverians, haven't we had enough of those sausage-eating bastards on the throne from George the Elector down to the German lad and the flatulent old bitch that's dead? Jesus, I had to laugh at the way he came out with that about the old one with the winkers on her. Blind drunk in her royal palace every night of God. Old Vic, with her jorum of mountain dew and her coachman carting her up body and bones to roll into bed and she pulling him by the whiskers and singing him old bits of songs about Aaron and the Ryan and come where the booze is cheaper. Well, says JJ. We have Edward the peacemaker now. Tell that to a fool, says the citizen. There's a bloody sight more pox than packs about that boy oh. Edward Guelph Witchin. And what do you think of the holy boys, the priests and bishops of Ireland, doing up his room in Maynooth in his satanic majesty's racing colours and sticking up pictures of all the horses his jockeys rode, the Earl of Dublin no less? He ought to have stuck up all the women he rode himself, says little Alf. And says JJ... Considerations of space influence their lordship's decision. Will you try another, citizen? Says Joe. Yes, sir, I will. You? Beholden to you, Joe, says I. May your shadow never grow less. Repeat that dose. Bloom was talking and talking with John Wise, and he quite excited with his dun duckety mud-coloured mug on him and his old plum eyes rolling about. 
persecution. All the history of the world is full of it, perpetuating national hatred among nations. But do you know what a nation means? Yes. What is it? A nation? A nation is the same people living in the same place. <laughs> oh, by God, then, says Ned, laughing. If that's so, I'm a nation, for I'm living in the same place for the past five years. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, everyone had a laugh at Bloom and Cecilia trying to muck out of it. Or also living in different places. That covers my case, says Joe. What is your nation, if I may ask? Ireland. I was born here, Ireland. The citizen said nothing, only cleared the spit out of his gullet. And gob, he spat a red bank oyster out of him right in the corner. After you with the push, Joe, says he, taking out his handkerchief to swab himself dry. Here you are, citizen, says Joe. Take that in your right hand and repeat after me the following words. The much-treasured and intricately embroidered ancient Irish face cloth attributed to Solomon of Drummer and Manus Tumultock Og Macdonough, authors of the Book of Ballymote, was then carefully produced and called forth prolonged admiration. No need to dwell on the legendary beauty of the corner pieces, the acme of art, wherein one can distinctly discern each of the four evangelists in turn, presenting to each of the four masters his evangelical symbol, a bog oak sceptre, a North American puma, a far nobler king of beasts than the British article, be it said in passing, a Kerry calf and a golden eagle from Karen Tool. The scenes depicted on the emunctory field, showing our ancient Doones and Raths and Cromlechs and Grianons and seats of learning and maledictive stones, are as wonderfully beautiful and the pigments as delicate as when the Sligo illuminators gave free rein to their artistic fantasy long, long ago in the time of the Barmecides. Glendalough, the lovely lakes of Killarney, the ruins of Clonmacnoise, Cong Abbey, Glenina and the Twelve Pins, Ireland's Eye, the green hills of Tallet, Crow Patrick, the brewery of Messrs Arthur Guinness, Son and Company Limited, Loch Ney's Banks, the Vale of Avoca, Isald's Tower, the Mappas Obelisk, Sir Patrick Dunn's Hospital, Cape Clear, the Glen of Aherlow, Lynch's Castle, the Scotch House, Rathdown Union Workhouse at Lochlinstown, Tullamore Jail, Castle Connell Rapids, Kilbally MacShonakill, the Cross at Monaster Boyce, Jury's Hotel, St Patrick's Purgatory, the Salmon Leap, Maynooth College Refectory, Curley's Hole, the three birthplaces of the first Duke of Wellington, the Rock of Cashel, the Bog of Allen, the Henry Street Warehouse, Fingal's Cave. All these moving scenes are still there for us today, rendered more beautiful still by the waters of sorrow which have passed over them, and by the rich incrustations of time. Shove us over the drink, says I. Which is which? That's mine, says Joe. As the devil said to the dead policeman... And I belong to a race, too, that is hated and persecuted. Also now, this very moment, this very instant... Gob, he near putting his fingers with the butt of his old cigar. Robbed, plundered, insulted, persecuted. Taking what belongs to us by right, at this very moment... Says he, putting up his fists. Sold by auction off in Morocco like slaves or cattles. Are you talking about the new Jerusalem? I'm talking about injustice. Right, says John Wise. Stand up to it, then, with force, like men. That's an almanac picture for you. Mark for a soft-nosed bullet. Old lardy face standing up to the business end of a gun. Gob, he'd adored in a sweeping bush, so he would, if he only had a nurse's apron on him. And then he collapses all of a sudden, twisting around all the opposite, as limp as a wet rag. But it's no use. Force, hatred, history, all that. 
That's not life for men and women, insult and hatred. And everybody knows that it's the very opposite of that that is really life. What? Says Alf. Love. I mean the opposite of hatred. I must go now. Just round to the court a moment to see if Martin is there. If he comes, just say I'll be back in a second. Just a moment. Who's hindering you? And off you pops like greased lightning. A new apostle to the Gentiles. Says the citizen. Universal love. Well, says John Wise. Isn't that what we're told? Love your neighbours? That chap, says the citizen. Bigger my neighbour is his motto. Love my ya. He's a nice patron of a Romeo and Juliet. Love loves to love love. Nurse loves the new chemist. Constable 14A loves Mary Kelly. Gertie McDowell loves the boy that has the bicycle. MB loves a fair gentleman. Hee chee han, lovey up kissy cha poo cha. Jumbo the elephant loves Alice the elephant. Old Mr. Verscoil with the ear trumpet loves old Mrs. Verscoil with the turned in eye. The man in the brown Macintosh loves a lady who is dead. His Majesty the King loves Her Majesty the Queen. Mrs. Norman W. Tupper loves Officer Taylor. You love a certain person. And this person loves that other person because everybody loves somebody. But God loves everybody. Well, Joe, says I, your very good health and song. More power, citizen. Hurrah there, says Joe. The blessing of God and Mary and Patrick on you, says the citizen. And he ups with his point to wet his whistle. We know those canters, says he, preaching and picking your pocket. What about sanctimonious Cromwell and his iron sides that put the women and children of Drogheda to the sword with the Bible text, God is love, pasted round the mouth of his cannon? The Bible. <laughs> Did you read that skish in the United Irishman today about that Zulu chief that's visiting England? What's that? Says Joe. So the citizen takes up one of his paraphernalia papers and he starts reading out. A delegation of the chief cotton magnates of Manchester was presented yesterday to His Majesty the Alaki of Abeakuta by gold-stick-in-waiting Lord Walkup of Walkup on Eggs to tender to His Majesty the heartfelt thanks of British traders for the facilities afforded them in his dominions. The delegation partook of luncheon, at the conclusion of which the dusky potentate, in the course of a happy speech, freely translated by the British chaplain, the Reverend Ananias, praise God, Barebones, tendered his best thanks to Massa Walkup, and emphasised the cordial relations existing between Abiakuta and the British Empire, stating that he treasured as one of his dearest possessions an illuminated Bible, the volume of the Word of God and the secret of England's greatness, graciously presented to him by the white chief woman, the great squaw Victoria, with a personal dedication from the august hand of the royal donor. The Alaki then drank a loving cup of first shot uskaba to the toast black and white from the skull of his immediate predecessor in the dynasty Kakachakachak surnamed Forty Warts, after which he visited the chief factory of Cottonopolis and signed his mark in the visitor's book, subsequently executing an old abiacutic war dance, in the course of which he swallowed several knives and forks amid hilarious applause from the girl hands. Widow woman, says Ned. I wouldn't doubt her. 
Wonder did he put that Bible to the same use as I would? Same only more so, says Lenehan. And thereafter in that fruitful land, the broad-leaved mango flourished exceedingly. Is that by Griffith? Says John Wise. No. Says the citizen. It's not signed Shangana, it's only initialed. And a very good initial too, says Joe. That's how it's worked, says the citizen. Trade follows the flag. Well, says JJ. If they're any worse than those Belgians in the Congo Free State, they must be bad. Did you read that report by a man? What's this his name is? Caseman, says the citizen. He's an Irishman. Yes, that's the man, says JJ. Raping the women and girls and flogging the natives on the belly to squeeze all the red rubber they can out of them. I know where he's gone, says Lenehan, cracking his fingers. Who, says I? Blue, says he. The courthouse is a blind. He had a few bob on throwaway and he's gone to gather in the shekels. Is it that white-eyed Kaffer, says the citizen, that never backed a horse in anger in his life? That's where he's gone, says Lenehan. I met Bantam Lyons going to back that horse, only I put him off it, and he told me Bloom gave him the tip. Bet you what you like, he has a hundred shillings to five on. He's the only man in Dublin has it. A dark horse. He's a bloody dark horse himself, says Joe. Mind Joe, says I, shows the entrance out. There you are, says Terry. Goodbye, Ireland. I'm going to court. So I just went round at the back of the yard to pump ship and big up hundred shillings to five. While I was letting off me throw away twenty chill. Letting off me load. Gob says I to myself. I knew he was uneasy in his two points off of Joe and one in Slattery's off. In his mind to get off the mark to hundred shillings is five quid. And when they were in the dark horse, piss of work was telling me card party and letting on the child was sick. Gob must have done about a gallon. Flabby ass of a wife speaking down the tube. She's better or she's oh, all of a plan. So he could vamuse with the pill if he won or... Jesus. <sighs> Full up I was. Trading without a licence. <sighs> Ireland me nation, says he. <clears throat> Never be up to those bloody... Ah, there's the last of it. Jerusalem. Ah. Cuckoos. So anyhow, when I got back, they were at it ding-dong. John Wise, saying it was Bloom, gave the idea for Sinn Féin to Griffiths to put in his paper. All kinds of gerrymandering, packed juries and swindling the taxes off of the government and appointing consuls all over the world to walk about selling Irish industries. Robbing Peter to pay Paul. God, but that puts the bloody kibosh on it if old sloppy eyes is mucking up the show. Give us a bloody chance. God save Ireland from the likes of that bloody mouse about. Mr Bloom with his argol, bargol. And this old fella before him perpetrating frauds. Old Methuselah Bloom, the robbing bagman that poisoned himself with the prussic acid after he swamping the country with his baubles and his penny diamonds. Loans by post on easy terms. Any amount of money advanced on note of hand. 
Distance, no object, no security. Gob, he's like Lanty McHale's ghost that'll go a piece of the road with everyone. Well, it's a fact, says John Wiles. And there's the man now that'll tell you about it, Martin Cunningham. Sure enough, the castle car drove up with Martin on it and Jack Power with him and a fellow named Croft or, or Crofton, pensioner out of the Collector General's. An orangeman Blackburn does have on the registration and he's drawn his pay. Or Crawford gallivanting around the country at the king's expense. Our travellers reached the rustic hostelry and alighted from their palfreys. Ho, Varret! cried he, who by his means seemed the leader of the party. Saucy knave, to us! So saying, he knocked loudly with his sword hilt upon the open lattice. Mine host came forth at the summons, girding him with his tabard. Give you good deen, my master, said he with an obsequious bow. Bestir thyself, sirrah, cried he who had knocked. Look to our steeds. And for ourselves, give us of your best, for a faith we need it. Like a day, good master, said the host. My poor house has but a bare larder. I know not what to offer your lordships. How now, fellow, cried the second of the party, a man of pleasant countenance. So servest thou the king's messengers, master Tapton? An instantaneous change overspread the landlord's visage. Cry you mercy, gentlemen, he said humbly. And you be the king's messengers. God shield his majesty. You shall not want for aught. The king's friends, God bless his majesty, shall not go a-fasting in my house. I wasn't me. There about, cried the traveller who had not spoken, a lusty trencherman by his aspect. Hast art to give us? Mine host bowed again as he made answer. What say you, good masters, to a squab pigeon pasty? Some collops of venison, a saddle of veal, a widgeon with crisp hog's bacon, a boar's head with pistachios, a basin of jolly custard, a midlar tansy, and a flagon of old Rhenish. Gadzooks! cried the last speaker. That likes me well. Pistachios! Aha! cried he of the pleasant countenance. A poor house and a bare larder, quoth I. Tis a merry rogue. So in comes Martin, asking where was Bloom. Where is he? says Lenehan. Defrauding widows and orphans. Isn't that a fact? says John Wise. What was I telling the citizen about Bloom and the Sinn Fein? That's all, says Martin. Or so they allege. Who made those allegations? Says Alf. I. Says Joe. I'm the alligator. And after all, why can't a Jew love his country like the next fella? Why not? Says JJ. When he's quite sure which country it is. Is he a Jew or a Gentile or a Holy Roman or a Swaddler or what the hell is he? Says Ned. Or who is he? No offence, Crofton. We don't want him. Says Crofter, the orange man or Presbyterian. Who is Junius? Says JJ. He's a perverted Jew. Says Martin. From a place in Hungary. And it was he drew up all the plans according to the Hungarian system. We know that in the castle. Isn't he your cousin of Bloom, the dentist? Says Jack Power. Not at all. Says Martin. Only namesakes. His name was Virag. The father's name that poisoned himself. He changed it by deed, Paul, the father did. That's the new messiah for Ireland. Says the citizen. Island of saints and sieges. Well, they're still waiting for their redeemer. Says Martin. For that matter, so are we. Yes, says JJ. And every male that's born, they think it may be their Messiah. And every Jew is in a tall state of excitement, I believe, till he knows if he's a father or a mother. Expecting every moment would be his next, says Lenahan. Oh, by God, says Ned. You should have seen Bloom before that son of his that died was born. I met him one day in the South City markets buying a tin of Neve's food, six weeks before the wife was delivered. On ventre de says JJ. Do you call that a man? Says the citizen. I wonder did he ever put it out of sight? Says Joe. Well, there were two children born anyhow. Says Jack Power. And who does he suspect? Says the citizen. 
Cobb, there's many a true word spoken in jest. One of those mixed middlings he is. Lying up in the hotel, Hissa was telling me once a month, with headache like a tatty with her courses. Do you know what I'm telling you? It'd be an act of God to take a hold of a fellow the like at that and throw him into bloody sea. Justifiable homicide, so it would. Then sloping off with his five quid without putting up a pint of stuff like a man. Give us your blessing. Not as much as would blind your eye. Charity to the neighbour, says Martin. But where is he? We can't wait. A wolf in sheep's clothing, says the citizen. That's what he is. Virag from Hungary. A hasuer, as I call him. Cursed by God. Have you time for a brief libation, Martin? Says Ned. Only one, says Martin. Uh, we must be quick. Uh, JJ and S. You, Jack? Crofton? Three half ones, Terry. St. Patrick would want to land again at Ballykindler and convert us, says the citizen, after allowing things like that to contaminate our shores. Well, says Martin, rapping for his glass. God bless all here is my prayer. Amen, says the citizen. And I'm sure he will, says Joe. And at the sound of the sacring bell, headed by a crucifer with acolytes, curifers, boat-bearers, readers, ostiarii, deacons and subdeacons, the blessed company drew nigh of vitered abbots and priors and guardians and monks and friars, the monks of Benedict of Spoleto, Carthusians and Camaldolisi, Cistercians and Olivetans, Oratorians and Vallombrosans, and the friars of Augustine, Brigitines, Premonstratensians, Servi, Trinitarians, and the children of Peter Nolasco. And therewith from Carmel mount the children of Elijah, prophet, led by Albert, bishop, and by Teresa of Avila, Calst, and other, and friars brown and grey, sons of poor Francis, Capuchins, Cordeliers, Minims and Observants, and the daughters of Clara, and the sons of Dominic, the friars' preachers, and the sons of Vincent, and the monks of St. Woolston, and Ignatius his children, and the confraternity of the Christian brothers, led by the Reverend Brother Edmund Ignatius Rice. And after came all saints and martyrs, virgins and confessors, St. Seer and St. Isidore Arator, and St. James the Less, and St. Focus of Sinope, and St. Julian Hospitator, and St. Felix de Cantalice, and St. Simon Stylites, and St. Stephen Protomartyr, and St. John of God, and St. Feriol, and St. Lugard, and St. Theodotus, and St. Volmar, and St. Richard, and St. Vincent de Paul, and St. Martin of Todi, and St. Martin of Tours, and St. Alfred, and St. Joseph, and St. Dennis, and St. Cornelius, and St. Leopold, and St. Bernard, and St. Terence, and St. Edward, and St. Owen Caniculus, and St. Anonymous, and St. Eponymous, and St. Pseudonymous, and St. Homonymous, and St. Paronymous, and St. Synonymous, and St. Lawrence O'Toole, and St. James of Dingle and Compostella, and St. Column Kill, and St. Columba, and St. Celestine, and St. Coleman, and St. Kevin, and St. Brendan, and St. Frigidian, and St. Senon, and St. Faulkner, and St. Columbanus, and St. Gaul, and St. Fursey, and St. Finton, and St. Fiacre, and St. John Nepomuk, and St. Thomas Aquinas, and St. Ives of Brittany, and St. Micken, and St. Herman Joseph, and the three patrons of holy youth, St. Aloysius Gonzaga, and St. Stanislaus Kostka, and St. John Berkmans, and the saints Gervasius, Servasius, and Bonifacius, and St. Bride, and St. Kieran, and St. Canis of Kilkenny, and St. Jarleth of Tuam, and St. Finbar, and St. Papin of Ballymun, and Brother Aloysius Pacificus, and Brother Louis Bellicosus, and the saints Rose of Lima, and of Viterbo, and St. Martha of Bethany, and St. Mary of Egypt, and St. Lucy, and St. Bridget, and St. Attracta, and St. Dimpna, and St. Ita, and St. Marian Calpensis, and the Blessed Sister Teresa of the Child Jesus, and St. Barbara, and St. Scholastica, and St. Ursula with eleven thousand virgins. And all came with Nimby, and Aureoles, and Gloriae, 
bearing palms and harps and swords and olive crowns, in robes whereon were woven the blessed symbols of their efficacies, inkhorns, arrows, loaves, cruises, fetters, axes, trees, bridges, babes in a bathtub, shells, wallets, shears, keys, dragons, lilies, buckshots, beards, hogs, lamps, bellows, beehives, soup ladles, stars, snakes, anvils, boxes of vaseline, bells, crutches, forceps, stags' horns, watertight boots, hawks, millstones, eyes on a dish, wax candles, aspergills, unicorns. And as they wended their way by Nelson's Pillar, Henry Street, Mary Street, Capel Street, Little Britain Street, chanting the introit in Epiphania Domini, which beginneth Sorge Illuminare, and thereafter most sweetly the gradual Omnes, which saith De Saba Venient, they did divers wonders, such as casting out devils, raising the dead to life, multiplying fishes, healing the halt and the blind, discovering various articles which had been mislaid, interpreting and fulfilling the scriptures, blessing and prophesying. And last, beneath a canopy of cloth of gold, came the Reverend Father O'Flynn, attended by Malachi and Patrick. And when the good fathers had reached the appointed place, the house of Bernard Kiernan and Company Limited, 8, 9 and 10 Little Britain Street, wholesale grocers, wine and brandy shippers, licensed for the sale of beer, wine and spirits for consumption on the premises, the celebrant blessed the house, and since the mullioned windows and the groins and the vaults and the arrases and the capitals and the pediments and the cornices and the engrailed arches and the spires and the cupolas and sprinkled the lintels thereof with blessed water and prayed that God might bless that house as he had blessed the house of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and make the angels of his light to inhabit therein. And entering he blessed the viands and the beverages and the company of all the blessed answered his prayers. Adjutorium nostrum in nomine Domini. We Nominus forbiscum. And he laid his hands upon the blessed and gave thanks, and he prayed, and they all with him prayed. Deus, cuius verbo sanctificantur omnia, benedictionem tuam effunde super creaturas istas. Et presta, ut quisquis eis secundum legem et voluntatem tuam, cum gratiarum actione usus fuerit per invocationem sanctissimi nominis tui, corporis sanitatem et anime tutelam te auctore percipiat per Christum Dominum nostrum. And so say all of us, says Jack. Thousand a year, Lambert, says Crofton or Crawford. Right, says Ned, taking up his John Jemison. And butter for fish? I was just looking round to see who the happy thought would strike. When be damned, but in he comes again, letting Aunt be in a hell of a hurry. I was just around at the courthouse, says he. Looking for you, I hope I'm not. No, says Martin. We're ready. Courthouse, my eye, and your pockets hanging down with gold and silver. Mean bloody scut. Stand us a drink itself. Devil a sweet fare. There's a Jew for you. All for number one. Cute as a shithouse rat. Hundreds of five. Don't kill anyone. Says the citizen. Beg your pardon. Says he. Come on, boys. Says Martin, seeing it was looking blue. Come along now. Don't tell anyone. Says the citizen, letting a ball out of him. It's a secret. And the bloody dog woke up and let it growl. Bye bye, all. Says Martin. 
and he got them out as quick as he could. Jack Power and Crofton or whatever you call them, and him in the middle of them, letting on to be all at sea, up with them on the bloody jaunting car. Off with you, says Martin to the jarvey. The milk-white dolphin tossed his mane, and rising in the golden poop, the helmsman spread the bellying sail upon the wind and stood off forward with all sail set, the spinnaker to larboard. A many comely nymphs drew nigh to starboard and to larboard, and clinging to the sides of the noble bark, they linked their shining forms, as doth the cunning wheelwright when he fashions about the heart of his wheel the equidistant rays whereof each one is sister to another, and he binds them all with an outer ring, and giveth speed to the feet of men, when as they ride to a hosting, are contend for the smile of ladies fair. Even so do they come and set them, those willing nymphs, the undying sisters. And they laughed, sporting in a circle of their foam, and the bark clave the waves. But begob, I was just lowering the heel of the point when I saw the citizen getting up to waddle to the door, puffing and blowing with the dropsy, and he cursing the course of Cromwell on him, bell, book and candle in Irish, spitting and spatting out of him, and jaw and little Alf round him like a leprechaun throwing to pieces for him. Let me alone, says he. And begob, he got as far as the door, and they holding him, and he bawls out of him. Three cheers for Israel! Arras, sit down on the parliamentary side of your arse for Christ's sake, and don't be making a public exhibition of yourself. Jesus, there's always some bloody clown or other kicking up a bloody murder about bloody nothing. God, but it wouldn't the porter sour in your guts, so it would. And all the ragamuffins and sluts of the nation round the door, and Martin telling the jerry to drive ahead, and the citizen bawling, and Alf and Joe at him to wish and he on his high horse about the Jews, and the loafers calling for a speech, and Jack Power trying to get him to sit down on the car and hold his bloody jaw, and a loafer with a patch over his eyes starts singing, If the man in the moon was a Jew, 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 and the slut shouts out of her, Hey, mister, your fly is open, mister. And says he, Mendelssohn was a Jew, and Karl Marx and Mercadante and Spinoza, and the saviour was a Jew, and his father was a Jew, your God. He had no father. That'll do now. Drive ahead. Who's God? Well, his uncle was a Jew. Your God was a Jew. Christ was a Jew like me. Gob, the citizen made a plunge back into the shop. By Jesus, says he. I'll brain that bloody Jew man for using the holy name. By Jesus, I'll crucify him, so I will. Give us that biscuit box here. Stop, stop, says Joe. A large and appreciative gathering of friends and acquaintances from the metropolis and greater Dublin assembled in their thousands to bid farewell to Nadia Sargos Zurum Lepotiverag, late of Mrs. Alexander Toms, printers to his majesty, on the occasion of his departure for the distant climb of Sashaminosibrog Jugulias Dugalas, meadow of murmuring waters. The ceremony, which went off with great eclat, was characterised by the most affecting cordiality. An illuminated scroll of ancient Irish vellum, the work of Irish artists, was presented to the distinguished phenomenologist on behalf of a large section of the community, and was accompanied by the gift of a silver casket, tastefully executed in the style of ancient Celtic ornament, a work which reflects every credit on the makers, Messrs. Jacob August Jacob. The departing guest was the recipient of a hearty ovation, 
many of those who were present being visibly moved when the select orchestra of Irish pipes struck up the well-known strains of Come Back to Heaven, followed immediately by Rakowski's march. Tar barrels and bonfires were lighted along the coastline of the Four Seas, on the summits of the Hill of Hoth, Three Rock Mountain, Sugarloaf, Brayhead, the mountains of Morn, the Galtees, the Ox and Donegal and Spedden Peaks, the Nagels and the Buggeras, the Connemara Hills, the Reeks of McGillicuddy, Sleeve Orty, Sleeve Burner, and Sleeve Bloom. Amid cheers that rent the Wilkin, responded to by answering cheers from a big muster of henchmen on the distant Cambrian and Caledonian hills, the mastodontic pleasure ship slowly moved away, saluted by a final floral tribute from the representatives of the fair sex who were present in large numbers, while as it proceeded down the river, escorted by a flotilla of barges, the flags of the ballast office and custom house were dipped in salute, as were also those of the electrical power station at the Pigeon House. Vislonta Tathra! Kedves Baratung! Vislonta Tathra! Gone, but not forgotten. Cobb, the devil wouldn't stop until he got hold of the bloody tin anyhow, and out with him and little Alf hanging on to his elbow, and he shouting like a stuck pig, as good as any bloody play in the Queen's Royal Theatre. Till I murder him! And Ned and JJ paralysed with the laughing. Bloody wars, says I, I'll be in for the last gospel. But as luck would have it, the Jarvey got the nag's head round the other way and off with him. Hold on, citizen! Says Joe. Stop! Begob, he drew his hand and made a swipe and let fly. Mercy a God the sun was in his eyes or he'd have left him for dead. Gob, he near sent it into the county Longford. The bloody nag took fright, and the old monger laughed the car like bloody hell, and all the populace shouting and laughing, and the old tin box clattering along the street. The catastrophe was terrific and instantaneous in its effect. The observatory of Dunsink registered in all eleven shocks, all of the fifth grade of Mercalli's scale, and there is no record extant of a similar seismic disturbance in our island since the earthquake of 1534, the year of the rebellion of Silken Thomas. The epicentre appears to have been that part of the metropolis which constitutes the Inn's Key Ward and parish of St. Micken, covering a surface of 41 acres, two roods and one square pole or perch. All the lordly residences in the vicinity of the Palace of Justice were demolished, and that noble edifice itself, in which at the time of the catastrophe important legal debates were in progress, is literally a mass of ruins, beneath which it is to be feared all the occupants have been buried alive. From the reports of eyewitnesses, it transpires that the seismic waves were accompanied by a violent atmospheric perturbation of cyclonic character. An article of headgear since ascertained to belong to the much-respected clerk of the Crown and Peace, Mr George Fottrell, and a silk umbrella with gold handle with the engraved initials, coat of arms and house number of the erudite and worshipful chairman of quarter sessions, Sir Frederick Falconer, recorder of Dublin, have been discovered by search parties in remote parts of the island, respectively the former on the third basaltic ridge of the Giant's Causeway, the latter embedded to the extent of one foot three inches in the sandy beach of Hole Open Bay near the old head of Kinsale. Other eyewitnesses deposed that they observed an incandescent object of enormous proportions hurtling through the atmosphere at a terrifying velocity in a trajectory directed southwest by west, 
Messages of condolence and sympathy are being hourly received from all parts of the different continents, and the Sovereign Pontiff has been graciously pleased to decree that a special Missa Pro Defunctis shall be celebrated simultaneously by the ordinaries of each and every cathedral church of all the Episcopal dioceses subject to the spiritual authority of the Holy See, in suffrage of the souls of those faithful departed who have been so unexpectedly called away from our midst. The work of salvage, removal of debris, human remains, etc., has been entrusted to Messrs. Michael Mead and Son, 159 Great Brunswick Street, and Messrs. T.C. Martin, 77, 78, 79 and 80 North Wall, assisted by the men and officers of the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, under the general supervision of H.R.H. H. Rear Admiral the Right Honourable Sir Hercules Hannibal Habeas Corpus Anderson, K.G., K.P., K.T., P.C., K.C.B., M.P., J.P., M.B., D.S.O., S.O.D., M.F.H., M.R.I.A., B.L., Mosdoc, P.L.G., F.T.C.D., F.R.U.I., F.R.C.P.I. and F.R.C.S.I. You never saw the like of it in all your board and puff. Gob, if he got that lottery ticket on the side of his pole, he'd remember the gold cup he would so. But be gob, the citizen would have been lagged for assault and battery, and Joe for aiding and abetting. The Jarvey saved his life by furious driving as sure as God made Moses. What? Oh, Jesus, he did. And he let a volley of oaths after him. Did I kill him? Or what? And he's shouting to the bloody dog. After him, Gary! After him, boy! And the last we saw was the bloody car round in the corner. And old sheep's face on it, gesticulating. And the bloody monger laughed through it with his lugs back for all he was bloody well worth to tear him limb from limb. Hundreds of five. Jesus, he took the value of it out of him, I promise you. When, lo, there came about them all a great brightness, and they beheld the chariot wherein he stood ascend to heaven. And they beheld him in the chariot, clothed upon in the glory of the brightness, having raiment as of the sun, fair as the moon, and terrible that for awe they durst not look upon him. And there came a voice out of heaven calling, Elijah, Elijah. And he answered with a main cry, Abba Adonai. And they beheld him, even him, Ben Bloom Elijah, amid clouds of angels ascend to the glory of the brightness at an angle of forty-five degrees over Donohoe's in Little Green Street, like a shot off a shovel. 